everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration, the final one of 2022. Uh, you know, this all started with Future State back in January of 2021. And it's hard to believe it's going to be like two years since we started doing this DC spotlight. Uh, time flies and, you know, glad glad that Future State is is further and further in the rear view. Um, <laughs> it's not the future but, anymore. <laughs> yeah, but just, just like, yeah, just like during Future State when there was tons of books, man, there's tons of books. Like, it's a light week for everybody else. It was a light week last week for Marvel and most of the independents. This week's even even less output from Marvel and the independents. But man, DC's like, I, I we got to get this stuff out for the 2022 calendar year, I guess. There's like, I don't even know how many books, like 18, it felt like. And we didn't even necessarily read all of them. You know, there's a few things, uh, the Young Justice uh, Deep Targets or whatever it's called, uh, Hard Target, whatever, that we don't typically uh, talk about and some other books. But for the most part, we're, we we read everything. We're going to talk about it. But the other thing is, even though, you know, we read these, there's a, there's a couple, like, huge anthologies. <laughs> so, yeah, it made for a very heavy week. So I guess if you're off of work, you know, if you're out of school and you need some reading material, this is the week for you for, for DC. I, I feel like overall it was pretty solid, I'd say above average, but it wasn't one of those weeks where, you know, we had books that just blew me away, so – Anyway, what were your thoughts, Rocky? Well, there was a lot of significant books, I thought. I, and I think, yeah. I think there, interestingly enough, there's a lot of uh, storylines that, that ended, that comic books that hit us sort of out of the blue that, that actually have some kind of significant revelations in it. John Stewart, Emerald, Emerald, uh, Emerald Knight has a very significant revelation at the end of it, which was surprising because that was, sort of came out of the blue. And I think his story, I think, is completely underrated. It's not given enough hype. We got Action Comics 1050 starting off a new era for Superman and uh, Dead Boy Detectives. And uh, well, there's just there's just a whole slew here that I think are sort of coming under the radar and uh, some are over the radar that uh, makes for a very interesting way to sort of capstone this year. And it just I think it's almost emblematic of the of of the schizophrenic nature of DC comics over the last year where we've you and I can both uh, sort of uh, we've both had some significant highs and some very some significant lows for DC and so it's been sort of an interesting year so at some point we might want to do a retrospective on on DC because it's it was, it was an interesting year and an interesting week yeah I, I would I would agree with that um, and what's funny is you know Again, apologize that this is coming out a little later than normal, um, but just with the holidays and travel and all that, it just couldn't, couldn't be helped. Um, and last week's was late, and that was 100% my fault because I read all these books last week. So uh, I, I had like refresh my memory and, and kind of skimmed through them. But uh, let's go ahead and get started. First book we're going to talk about uh, is another of the Sandman Universe books. It's Dead Boy Detectives Number 1. It's from writer Pornsack Pichichote. Jeff Stokely is the artist. Miguel Muerto does the colors. Hassan Atzman Elhow on lettering. Um, we we see the witch that we saw in the Nightmare Country. Um, yeah, Thessaly uh, is her name. Uh, we we saw her in Tynan's um, uh, Nightmare Country book title recently, and so I, I suppose you could think of that issue as sort of a backdoor pilot to uh, to this. Now, the Dead Boy Detectives aren't, aren't new characters. That being said, I've never read anything of the Dead Boy Detectives. I enjoyed this well enough. I, I think part of the reason that I enjoyed this so much is I just kind of, I'm a fan of, of Pornsack. I, I really enjoy his, um, 
his style of writing. I like the, the vocabulary and kind of the language and the tone that he uses. So even though this is in the Sandman universe, and so, you know, kind of by definition, it's going to be kind of darker, um, a little more on the, the horror side of things from DC. He keeps it light. He, he keeps this interesting balance. There's also enough intrigue with what's going on with the, the, these dead boy detectives, which they are dead, uh, but there are certain members of who are living of the human race who can see them. But they're exactly as the title said, they're, they're young boys. They were killed when they were young. They're very much uh, inquisitive by nature. They like to solve mysteries. So you can almost think of it like, I don't know, the Hardy Boys, uh, you know, in, in the Sandman, you know, realm, the Sandman world, Sandman universe, if you want to use that term, as, as the title says. So, uh, again, I'm not that familiar with these characters, but I thought it was interesting enough. And Pornsack's leaning into some of his Asian roots, I suppose, because we're going to get what looks to be some some ghosts and and some mythologies from some uh from some asian countries if you will so um in fact one of the uh, main characters here who shows up it and unfortunately doesn't survive the the issue uh, is talking about the way that thai people see ghosts taiwanese um from thailand and so um i yeah i found that interesting i don't know much about that um I don't know how much Thai um, ancestry Pornsack has. Um, I know that he, he has some Japanese uh, ancestry, um, but it's nice to see other mythologies brought in here. So uh, I thought it was solid. thought the art by Jeff Stokely very much suited the, the tone that Pornsack was going for. So overall, I thought this was pretty solid, a good start, and, uh, and new reader friendly as well. Because again, I, I'm not familiar with Dead Boy Detectives, and I was able to, to pick it up, and um, I didn't feel lost at all. What were your thoughts? Uh, I agree with you. Uh, it adds it adds to the mythology of the the Dead Boys, and I've I've read I've read a little bit of the Dead Boys. I've got I've got their their last uh, series. Uh, I did read and I did read uh, Thessaly. That's not the full name of the series. I, it was a four issue series on Thessaly, so I'm sort of familiar with it. I like how it builds in the mythology here, and I like how it, it actually expands the idea that it's not just these two Dead Boy detectives. And and their backstory is that they're you know whatever I think it was like a hundred years ago they both they died together and they end up coming back and they're they're literally detectives they're like two little they're like the Hardy Boys meets Sherlock Holmes meets the supernatural uh, but they they uh, as you said uh, porn check here it is a good chat <laughs> did I say that right porn check porn sack porn sack sorry porn sack I, 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 lo I love saying his last name. Porn so, yeah, I imagine going through life with that name. That's a horror show right there. But <laughs> but no, it's all, it's all good. Uh, he does a good job here. Like I say, new reader friendly. And the idea that incorporating, there's different, all these are different ghosts. Uh, there's actually, it's almost like a miniature group of detectives. They, they have their own little, like, uh, it reminds me a little bit of like, a, like a, just a small little, like, like just, just a teenage gang that they happen to all be dead. Ghosts in their own right from different mythologies, different. Uh, from different countries, different cultures, and they basically they're going to have to solve solve a murder mystery of the supernatural. And I think the characters are well rounded or work kind of well. It took me a little while to get used to the art. To be honest, it, I thought it was it was off. It, I, I wasn't prepared for uh, for some reason. This is a jarring uh, artistic change for me from what I'm used to seeing these how these characters drawn. I can't remember.
remember the previous artists that had drawn them. But I, by the time I finished reading this story, I, I was I was on board, and I'm definitely going to be on board for this moving forward. So people who like the supernatural, if you like Sandman, if you like good mysteries, uh, this is it. And um, uh, yeah, no, it's it's it was a it was it was a pleasant surprise. I mean, Sandman is always a pleasant surprise. It's rare that I read a bad Sandman. Uh, Sandman anything quite frankly anything related to the Sandman presents with DC they always seem to do a pretty damn good job so you know kudos to uh, Pornsack and apologies for laughing at the name <laughs> yeah uh, I feel like any writer that gets the call to be on a Sandman universe book is like oh my god Neil Gaiman you know everybody respects him looks up to him and so everybody's bringing their A game when they get on a Sandman book so uh, alright Batman the Beyond uh, Batman Beyond the White Knight number seven is up next. Sean Murphy on script art cover and the one in 25 variant cover. Dave Stewart handles the colors and world design on letters. Um, I think this is the penultimate issue. I think there's just one left after this. Um, and I thought it was pretty solid. We get sort of a, a reconciliation of Bruce and Dick Grayson in the, the Murphy verse, which I, I enjoyed. Um, we get a lot of Terry McGinnis fighting against powers um, as best he can, because remember, he's wearing a Batman Beyond suit that Powers has managed to compromise, I guess you could say. You know, it's, it's you know, Bruce Wayne tech, but the Powers uh, Corporation has made their own modifications. And so he's sort of uh, set against the Bat family for a little while, but they do manage to um, to purge what powers technology or software or infiltration virus, whatever you want to call it, is in the suit. But the way they do that is by injecting uh, Jack, Jack Napier, in the Joker, formerly the Joker, into the Batman Beyond suit. So I, I wasn't quite clear. I mean, we know that Bruce, for the last few issues – has been able to see and, and hear Jack Napier, only, only Bruce, you know, because supposedly he's dead. So this is sort of, I don't know, like a digital recording of Napier, I guess is how I'm kind of taking it, that's somehow in Bruce's brain. Um, but yet they hook him up to one of the bat vehicles. So I, I'm not quite sure how it was downloaded from Bruce's brain into Terry's, whatever. But, I mean, it works. Um and what's interesting is because the Batman Beyond suit has this holographic projector, once Jack is in the Batman Beyond suit, and Br so Bruce is like, I no longer have to listen to him. <laughs> now Now Terry's stuck with him. But he can project uh, a hologram of Jack Napier. And so um, everybody gets to see Jack, which is, is kind of interesting. Um, you know, and as much as I don't like the Joker, and in the Sean Gordon Murphy verse – he certainly has turned because it's not the Joker anymore, right? It's Jack Napier and he's much more of a, I guess, I don't want to say heroic character, but more of a, a protagonist rather than antagonist and certainly trying to redeem himself. And in the, in the original Batman white Knight, it, the Joker was more of an affliction as the way that Murphy portrayed it more of an affliction rather than, you know, anything that was chosen almost like a sickness. And I do like that take. And what I'm saying is this doesn't feel like the Joker to me, so it's not annoying like the way the Joker is to me where I'm like, oh, my God, I've read enough uh, Joker stories. But one thing that is sort of the same but in a kind of funhouse mirror distortion 
you hear so many people say in the regular DC universe that Batman and the Joker are kind of, you know, opposite sides of the same coin in a way that because they're both so obsessive and obviously they're opposed, they're opposing forces. Um, in this way, because this Batman has made some questionable decisions, obviously he ended up in prison. Uh, he, you know, he's not necessarily the most heroic version of Batman that we've seen. And with this version of Joker being, you know, more toward that, like I was saying, more of an antagonist or more of a protagonist rather than an antagonist, you could say that these two characters are also two sides of the same coin, even though they're different. You know, you wouldn't say that this Batman is that much like the the regular Bruce Wayne and, and vice versa So for the Joker. So uh, having Jack Napier as part of the Bat family, which is basically what's happening here, is, is pretty interesting to me. Um, there is the whole cliche, you know, of taking a villain, especially a popular one, and making him into a hero. And I certainly get tired of that. But this feels, you know, you can't put it in that simple of terms for these characters. Because like I said, there's less heroism to this version of Bruce Wayne, but there's also less villainy to this version of the Joker. So everybody sort of lives more toward the gray area. So we'll see, we'll see how that all plays out. Um, there was also a great scene with Bruce and uh, Harley Quinn. You know, we know they're they're married here, which I, I still think is weird. But, you know, obviously Jack's dead. Jack seems to have accepted it. And it was, I don't know, I guess you could label it, label it as a marriage of convenience. Again, you need to go back and read those other uh, previous volumes of White Knight to get the full understanding. But it's almost like Bruce has, has you know, seen it as a marriage of convenience and not really acknowledged it as a, as a real marriage and not really wanted to acknowledge the fact that he does truly have feelings for Harley Quinn. And that seems like it's starting to change with this uh, with this issue, which I also enjoyed. So jam-packed issue, lots going on, uh, tons of action. And this might be my favorite uh, White Knight series so far. Uh, I'd probably have to go back and reread all of them to say that with 100%. Um, but, I mean, they just keep getting better and better. I mean, I mean, the Harley Quinn one, I was like, oh, that's my favorite. And then he comes out with White Knight, and I'm like, oh, now that's even better. So kudos to Sean Gordon Murphy. He's really firing on all cylinders. And, uh, you know, glad DC's seemingly is hands off and Sean's getting to do whatever he wants, he wants to do because, um, these changes, you know, like with Jason Todd being the first Robin, for example, the changes he's making, well, even if they're inadvertent, like that change, they're really working. They really make it feel different and unique. So what were your thoughts on this Rocky? Uh, this is, feels like it has a happy ending and, and this isn't even the ending. There's one issue to go. And this this actually feels like an ending to me. I mean, it, it was even an inside joke in the comic where at the, on the final page uh, of this, it looks like they're walking toward the screen like in an action movie with an explosion behind them, except it minus the explosion. And I, I like the fact that this feels like we're heading toward a happy ending here, and it doesn't feel forced. It doesn't feel uh, this doesn't feel Duke Machina. It's uh, Sean Gordon Murphy's done a really good job here of. The plotting in this story, the plotting in this series has been excellent. I've really, I've, I felt, I've enjoyed it. It actually was believable to me. I thought it was, it, it contained as a, a good emotional moments, emotional moments for all the characters, the Harley, the Batman Beyond, the Bruce Wayne, even Joker, and even, and even the the offshoot uh, series with uh, Jason Todd and the new character. 
Gom or Gam or whatever her name is there. <laughs> Night, and, and Nightwing and Barbara Gordon. In fact, you could even put uh, Sean Gordon Murphy's uh, Nightwing and Barbara Gordon against uh, Tom Taylor's uh, Babs and uh, Night Dick Grayson any day of the week because there's a great scene here between uh, Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. And in fact... Um, well, I don't want to. I don't want to spoil issue one hundred of Nightwing. Suffice to say that people might, uh, people might be looking back to this issue if they want to get some Dixon Babs love. Uh, but in any event, I digress. Suffice to say, uh, this this has been a good series. This is. Uh, uh, I, I like the. I like where this is going here. I love Harley. I love this is my favorite version of Harley because this is of a Harley that is kick ass. Is, and you could tell there's a little bit of insanity in her that she reels in just enough and Bruce Wayne is screwed up and flawed enough, just enough to, to maintain some degree of, of he's just a, he's a far more interesting Bruce Wayne because he's more flawed. And sometimes when you're flawed, sometimes you don't, you make a mistake, you, you're always paying the price. And this is a this is about a Bruce Wayne that has paid a price. All the characters here, they've grown, they've evolved, and like you said, this is this is like the whatever the third, or four, the fourth, I think, Sean Gordon Murphy series, and it only keeps getting better and better. There's something to be said about a Murphy verse, or when a writer gets their own universe, and you don't let other people mess with it, and you leave it just for that writer. Maybe that's something that DC should work on because I don't want I don't want anyone else other than Murphy to be writing anything in his Murphy verse here, or if they're gonna if, they, if he's gonna go with anybody else maybe let him handpick the person but anyway well yeah i mean on that point you mentioned the i guess it was a two issue series right with with um jason todd red robin and gan that was somebody that was somebody else right so keep in mind yeah keep in mind that sean gordon murphy you know he started his career as a as an artist and i think when when they agreed to give him white knight and let him write and draw it he he brought on somebody to script you know, and if you're not familiar with that term, it means Sean was plotting and he was laying out the story and he's saying in this panel, this is what happens in this panel, this is what happens. But he had a more experienced writer who was actually writing the dialogue just to make sure or helping him with the dialogue, just to make sure everything flowed, you know, somebody with a little more experience. So now I don't think Sean needs that anymore because he's got his feet under him. As Rocky said, yeah, this is the fourth, fourth one. But yeah, that that other person obviously was work, you know, breaking story and breaking panels and whatnot with Sean and Sean trusted him enough to give him that two issue red Robin and Gan series. And I, it, it if I wouldn't have known better, I would have thought that Sean wrote it. I mean, it, it fit, had the same tone and it, it fit, it fit perfectly. So yeah, I, I say that to say, generally, I agree with you. I hope that they leave this just for, um, just for Sean Gordon Murphy, which I, you know, it seems like DC's headed that way, right? Like with deceased, Tom Taylor's the only one that's done any of that. We've had DC versus vampires. It's a pretty small group, Tynan and Rosenberg. And then I think when Tynan left, uh, Alex Pachnadol came on. So yeah, it's, it's good to, good to keep it small. I think. Yeah. Dark Knights of Steel with Taylor as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. So, uh, all right, well, let's move on. Next book we're going to talk about, uh, Batman Gotham Knights Gilded City Part 3, which is a tie-in to the video game. Evan Narcisse is the writer. Abel is the artist. John does the colors. A bunch of these one one name artists. Uh, Steve Wan's on letters. Um, I don't play the video game. I have no idea how well this ties in or not. It is telling a story in two different timelines. Back in the 1880s of Gotham City, uh, or 1840s, I should say, 1847, it says with the Court of Owls, and then also in, in present day. 
I got to say that I'm vastly more invested in the old school 840, uh, 1847 storyline. That being said, it does suffer from something I've complained about in detective comics, certainly in that annual where it's like, man, like, so Bruce wasn't really the first Batman. We're getting all these, you know, precursors to, to Batman. And I get it. It's fun to go back and tell a story of a, a version of Batman in, in the old West, as it were. Um, but it does, as I've said, when I talked about the detective annual, it does kind of lessen the, the speciality of, of Batman. Why, why didn't Bruce become Batman? Because these other characters that were inspired by bats fighting, ba- you know, back in the day made it seem like when that bat came through the window, it was like, Oh, Eureka. Um, and obviously we know because all this stuff is, is retcon. So uh, we do find out who the big bad is in this uh, issue. And it makes me wonder if he's the big bad in the video game as well. I would assume so. Uh, when you're talking about a villain who can, you know, span that t- nearly 200 year uh, timeline from uh, Gotham City in 1847 to Gotham City in present day, hey, it's Vandal Savage. So um, not a bad choice for a villain, I suppose. Um, but again, the, the, um, the current storyline is just kind of meh for me. Um, so what do you think? Well, I thought that uh, I thought finally uh, the writer uh, Yvonne uh, Narcisse finally finally revealed some information here because I, I was uh, I sort of threw out the comment I think earlier that what's the name of this old this the Batman of eighteen forty seven who is he what, what's his name and I, I guessed because on one of the covers of the second issue it says there's a wanted poster that says Runaway on it. And it's confirmed in this issue. That, yeah, his name is Runaway. So this Batman character—it's—it's it's actually not Batman, it's, but it's a character that certainly looks like an 1847 version of Batman. But it's called Runaway, and it's established in this issue that this Runaway character. Last issue, this Runaway character helped a number of other people overcome like a zombie attack. And it's revealed in this issue that the the Court of Owls, the uh, which is in its infancy in 1847, is trying to resurrect the dead and and commune and resurrect the dead in 1847. God them and this runaway of course wants to prevent them from doing that but they're fascinated by the runaway and they they want to recruit the runaway into their cause which is uh kudos to the writer uh, to narcisse because that's something that you'd expect the court of owls to do they're always looking for more talents to add to their mix they're looking for the best of the best to to work for them and to be indoctrinated into their way their way of thinking but of course this runaway uh interestingly enough this runaway is revealed to be in fact a runaway slave it was a former slave uh from and there's a flashback a farther flashback to 1834 1835 where this uh this runaway uh, uh, this slave escaped and uh so his history is interesting there so it's actually wetting the appetite a little bit i'm actually into this story where i don't know if this is a criticism or if this is going to be an underhanded compliment i still don't quite understand how this past story about the court of owls and the vandal savage in the past he's where they they're resurrecting the dead and the court of owls and there's this fomo virus a fear of missing out virus in the future there was a virus in 1847 gotham an epidemic and it's somehow linked to vandal savage and somehow that's linked to a a fomo virus in the present day the connections aren't really there now the fact that vandal savage is revealed at the end to be this probably the guy behind the scenes that doesn't really answer my question so but at the same time i'm definitely more curious now is because because that vandal is always vandal savage is the great thing about vandal savage is as a villain is that he's always playing the long game 
And you can, you know that. And so now my the wheels are ticking in my head. Oh, it's Vandal Savage. He's got he's got the patience of Job. I mean, uh, Vandal Savage can wait centuries to for to to pull the wool out from someone else. So if he's playing the long game, you know this might be actually fairly interesting. And uh, I don't play the video games, but I'm enjoying the story. Yeah, I feel like the way that it might tie in the only thing i can think of is uh whatever the kind of snake oil you know stuff that they were selling to people that eventually kills them and then they kind of rise up like zombies for lack of a better term maybe somehow that was changed or adjusted or you know whatever it's it's the precursor of this fomo virus yeah you might be right they say the fomo virus takes people's self-preservation instinct away so zombies of course don't have a self-preservation instinct so maybe that's i don't know yeah i i mean i'm grasping but that's the only thing i can think so uh all right up next blue beetle graduation day number two from writer josh trujillo adrian gutierrez is the artist will quintana on colors louis gatoni on letters I encourage everybody to go back and listen to the uh, episode, the interview I did with Josh. Uh, and we talked not too spoilery about this particular issue. We're going to spoil a lot more. We certainly discussed in uh, in that interview the fact that we have a new character showing up here. So speculator alert for those that like to uh, get first appearances. We have the first appearance of Victoria Cord, uh, who is Tim Cord's here to uh, for unmentioned sister sibling whatever like she's not it's never been revealed that he had a sister before probably because he actually didn't she's been created for this series um and again go listen to josh and i talk talk about her josh gives his um his opinions on who who she is and how she compares to ted what some of the similarities and differences are between the two so that's sort of the the big uh reveal in this issue uh but we also get to see the the villain I hate to almost call her a villain, um, but I guess we could call her the uh, the antagonist who shows up here, Dynastis, and we, we see her without her her armor. She has an armor that's very similar to Blue Beetles. Uh, obviously, it's yellow instead of blue, yellow and black instead of blue and black, um, but she seems to have a lot in common with, uh, with Jaime, so the question is, why is she attacking him, right? And with the help of Ted Cord, she is subdued and she takes the armor off, sheds the armor. And we find out her name is Ziomara. She's from uh, Brazil. And beyond that, yeah, we're going to have to wait and see um, what exactly is going on. Um, and again, I, I can't encourage you guys enough to go listen to my interview with Josh because we go over a lot of what's going on in, in terms of the story. But it is a a final page reveal here of Starfire showing up. We know Jaime's kind of been put on the sidelines by the rest of the Justice League um, with the Reach supposedly on their way. And Jaime's feeling kind of left out. You know, his parents haven't sent him over to Palmera City to work at his aunt's diner. He's not supposed to be being uh, in costume. So he's feeling pretty down. And for Starfire to show up and say the planet's preparing for war, Jaime, you know, you're the only one who can stop it. Well, it sounds like he's not going to be sidelined as Blue Beetle much longer. Uh, and from what Josh told me, Starfire is going to be a bit of a mentor for for Jaime going forward. So uh, I'm curious to see how that all plays out. Um, last thing I'll mention is the Adrian Gutierrez art. Very bright, very colorful. I mean, the, the brightness would be the colors by Lucas Gattoni uh, or, or Will Katana rather. 
Um, but Adrian Gutierrez on the art does a, a fantastic job. Very dynamic, um, bit of a more youthful style, you know, almost uh, cartoonish at times, but it really works for the tone of the story that they're telling here. So uh, I thought this was solid. What do you think? Uh, yeah, this felt very, uh, very action packed. It felt like it was always active. And the colors, you're right. The colors are fantastic. Really great on the colors. I enjoyed the, I liked the art. It, I, I thought the colors just popped off the page. This was kinetic. This felt like a fast read to me, despite having, it had a good amount of dialogue, but I liked, I love Ted Cord. I love Victoria Cord. What a debut. She looks like uh, quite the, uh, <laughs> I thought she looks actually kind of, uh, uddly enough, an, an attractive uh, corporate-esque kind of woman there. I, lo I love her blue beetle brooch that she has on her on her on her stylish sort of uh, you know she's she's got a great great fashion sense here just beautifully drawn. Uh, this new this character Xiomara, uh, I'm really curious to see Xiomara exactly. You know she she has her own beetle. Uh, I'm not I'm not super knowledgeable when it comes to blue beetle, so I'm a little bit you know with this this reach about to invade the planet. I don't know if I agree with the Justice League. I thought that was. Sort of a foolish, almost a dumbfounded move to take to take Jamie Reese off the table. By you know he's he's got a connection to the Reach. Why would you, why would you take him off the table and tell him to go go back to work at his mom's diner? What the hell is that about? Like that was just that to me that was a plot point that didn't quite make a lot of sense to me. I'm I'm very happy to see that Starfire shows up at the end of the issue to basically hopefully as you as you sort of give a little bit of a spoiler alert, you know, Starfire will be somewhat of a mentor. And I think, you know, Starfire does have that that she has she is an alien, she's familiar with the the, the most of the alien races in the galaxy. She's got a uh, very eclectic background herself. She's she's an interesting choice for Jamie Reese as a mentor and actually i think is an inspired one quite frank that i really like that idea makes it more interesting plus starfire is hot she's beautifully drawn here definitely is a different uh, style uh artistically this is a very more of a stylistic interpretation of starfire but the hair looks you know crazy as well but it's fun this this caught me by surprise this issue uh, i wasn't expecting I wasn't expecting to enjoy it. And I, I don't say that in a bad way. I just, there were so many comic books just saying, I, I thought I was going to end up skim reading this. And I didn't. I, I took my time. I, wa I wanted to take my time. I slowed down. I enjoyed it. And uh, I encourage people to pick this up. This was a really nice, uh, I think I'm going to graduate reading Blue Beetle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jaime is a, an interesting character. Um, I'm kind of the same way like I, as you in terms of not being that familiar. I didn't read any Jaime Reyes until the new 52. And then I think I read the first 11, 12 issues. And I honestly don't really remember anything other than he was going to high school. He was living with his family. Um, so it wasn't, wasn't super memorable. I'm going to ask you a question if I can on this, because I, yep, yep. The, the only thing that I had mixed feelings about, and uh, this is probably shows my bias, but uh I felt taken out of the story a little bit with all the Spanish. Uh, there is, uh, I should mention that for people who are watching, we, we, we get preview copies and we got both an English version copy and a Spanish version copy of this comic. But I'm wondering why, why there's at least one full page here. There's pages where all the dialogue's in Spanish. And I'm wondering what is the point of doing like, it just seemed odd to me that there's whole conversations that take place in the Spanish language. I don't speak Spanish. I got no idea what they're saying. Yeah. So jo Josh actually talked 
Yeah, Josh talked about that when we myself. I think that's that's. I'm asking you. Do you think I'm wrong on that, or why did yeah, you make yeah, that yeah, choice? Josh, Josh, yeah, Josh talked about that, um, and it's a conscious choice. Uh, and when I first was reading the the first issue, the English version, and I I noticed that, and I'm I'm of Hispanic heritage, so ha- I'm half Hispanic, but I don't speak nor read any any Spanish, um, and I, I I wish I did. Um, my grandparents, when they didn't want us kids to know what they were talking about, they would speak to each other in Spanish. Um, and my mom, my, my mom, who's the one that's, you know, that's her ancestry. She, when she was little, she could speak Spanish and understand Spanish because her grandmother only spoke Spanish. But then over the years, she kind of lost the ability to speak it. She can still kind of understand it. Um, but I say all that to say in kind of the, the cult, Hispanic culture, and Josh talks about this in the interview, switching back and forth from Spanish to English for those bilingual people is, is just, it's, they don't even think about it. Right. It's just, it's just second nature. So I, I kind of felt, feel, I mean, I get what you're saying and I understand cause it's like, man, when I read something, I want to read it all. I want to understand it all in context. You can certainly understand what they're saying, what, you know, kind of the general gist of what they're saying. They don't, they're not putting anything in Spanish that's like crucial to the story that you don't understand. So it's more, it's more to give a feel um, of of accurate depiction of Hispanic culture in this country, Mexican Americans um, specifically. That's Jaime's ancestry. So uh, so that's kind of and and how they switch back and forth. So so that's where it comes from. And again, Josh talks about it in, in the interview if you're if you're curious. But I do see I do see your point, right? Like, it's like, man, am I, do I need to go and like type this phrase into Google Translate so I can understand exactly what you're saying? You really, everybody, you don't need to take to really, I don't want to say waste your time, but you don't need to take the time to go and do that because you can see by the body language and by the context of what's happening in the story, you can kind of understand what's going on without necessarily translating it. But you can if you want. Um, but I hope, that being said, I hope it doesn't turn people off. I could see that happening. People going, I bought the English version. Why am I getting Spanish? Like, man, if you if you grew up where I grew up uh, in California, Central California, or if you live in Southern California or Arizona where I live now or Texas or whatever, it's like, man, you you hear Spanish, you know, constantly. That's just that's just the you know the world that we live in. So that's that's the point of it, just to try to depict a, a more. Um, you know, realistic. I, I'm just, I, I'm just really interesting. I never looked at the Spanish version that of preview that that we have, but I'm curious to look at it because does it does it flip the Spanish and English dialogue, or how does or is it all in Spanish? Like, uh, I'm, yeah, I'd be know. I'd be curious. Like, I I just don't understand if doing it half and half and then having two versions of it, it just seems odd to me. But yeah, I would get I would I would guess that the Spanish version is all in Spanish because I know they're selling that south of the border, as it were. Um, so anyway, uh, all right, up next we have DC horror presents Sergeant rock versus the army of the dead. Number four from writer, Bruce Campbell, Eduardo Riso is the artist, Christian Rossi on colors, Rob Lee on letters, bit of a transitional issue here. We have Sergeant rock and the rest of easy company trying to infiltrate behind, uh, German lines. They're, they're trying to follow the doctor that's created these quote unquote zombies. Uh, even though the term zombies didn't come around until the seventies. Um, Hitler, we know was very interested in the supernatural and was looking for ways to use the occult to help his war effort. This story by Bruce Campbell is sort of a, an extension of that, uh, with easy company and Sergeant rock and, um, 
trying to stop him basically. So um, a lot of action here, as I said, as Easy Company follows this doctor and is is trying to uh, to find out where Hitler is, what the end game is, and stop these zombies from being uh, being created. So um, there's not much more to it than that. It moves it moves along pretty quick, relatively quick read. Um, if you're a fan of you know Eduardo Riso's art, you'll be really really happy because um, he, his art really shines. Great visual storytelling in this one. Um, fabulous main cover by Gary Frank. And there's also a really cool propaganda type cover from Francesco Francavilla um, that I thought was cool too. So what are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. There's not a lot of, isn't it odd? Where This is a war comic where there's a lot of violence and everything else. And yet I'm inclined to say this story doesn't have a lot of substance. And yet I don't say that, I don't say that in a derogatory way. This is just... I, I love Edward Rizzo's art. I think he was, I, I think the guy was born to to draw an, uh, an army comic, a war comic. And I'm glad that we're getting this one. I mean, we got, we got zombies and we got Adolf Hitler and we got Sergeant Rock and Easy Company. And this, I'm just, I, I enjoyed this. You know, it's funny. I, I probably took as long to read this, despite the fact that it's mostly just pictures and the, the dialogue goes, you know, most of, most of it is it's captioned. Like there's a lot of, there's, there's just like expository boxes as opposed to dialogue per se. It's just fun. This is this is just straight up good pure violence. This is one one great thing that that uh, uh, writer Bruce Campbell understands about classic Sergeant Rock stories is that there was always some smart ass comment when they're in the midst of war because they always one of the things that kept Sergeant Rock and Easy Company from going insane is that they could find humor even bad humor in the most horrific types of situations. Bruce Campbell takes does that to really good effect here and there's a lot of humor here and uh i mean it's embodied in the, on the very last page even when 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 sergeant rock you know he says we got good news and bad news what's the good news well we just found hitler what's the bad news i lost my zippo um he'd used the zippo earlier to uh facilitate an explosion but in any event it's it's uh it's just th that it's that type of uh hard visceral horror-like elements that, that make this work. It's a combination. I would not have thought, I mean, kudos to Bruce Campbell for, uh, I mean, the guy may not be, uh, I'm thinking of, um, uh, uh, mm, the, the movie star, Berserker, the, um, oh, Keanu, Reeves. Keanu Reeves. Yeah. He's probably not a, he's, he's no Keanu Reeves, but, uh, I like where, you know, he, he's a decent enough comic book writer that he's clearly, ha he has enough fun with this and, and I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm getting every issue of this series and, and you know what I can, I love, uh, Frank, uh, Frank Villa's art. I'm getting just the, I'm getting all his covers. I'm not actually getting any of the covers of, uh, w which surprises me. I probably should get both covers, but, uh, I'm just getting the Frank Villa covers for this one. Cause I just, I, I just, it, they all look like war posters and they just look amazing. Yeah, they're, they really are, uh, cool looking propaganda posters and Eduardo Riso, if he reminds me of anybody, um, it's Frank Avia in terms of uh, his style. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Wonder Woman Historia, the Amazons. This is book number three from writer Kelly Sue DeConnick. Nicola Scott is the artist. Annette Kwok on colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, man, I, I wish this book came out quicker. I, I, I just wish there wasn't so much time between issues. Like you, when you look at the art, you can understand why. But it, I don't know. I just feel like it sort of loses some momentum. Uh, I've almost forgotten what's happened in the previous 
issues by the time the next one comes out. So uh, anyway, what were your thoughts, Rocky? I'm just, uh, I apologize for the delay. I'm just waiting for it to pop up here. Is uh, I thought this was, this was a nice, this was a nice capstone on this three issue series. I know that, I know that, um, uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick has stated that she actually has nine chapters that she'd like to write. And uh, when she originally gave an interview back when the first volume of Historia came out, and this is the third one, but when the first issue came out, she had talked that she would she was seeking permission or was hoping that it would be, be well received enough that she could tell all nine chapters of the story she has. But she was approved for three. Now, I don't know if we're going to get the other six chapters, but I'm, I personally hope that we do. I... I quite enjoy. I, I quite enjoy this. Now, this I, I'm happy to report that. I mean, the art by Nicola Scott is absolutely beautiful. That's one thing that this series has. It's been gifted with not only a good writer with Kelly Sudeconic who does a very good job delving into the mythology and adding to it and giving her own in, interpretation of it. But between. Um, um, uh, it was uh, Gene Ha did the second issue. Uh, Phil Hamminas uh, did the first one, and and now here with Nicola Scott. Uh, Nicola Scott, this is truly fantastic. Uh, the art here is it really is amazing. This particular issue shines, and one of the characters that comes that really shines is Hera herself. Now. Uh, I could easily spend probably a good hour. At some point, I might even do a retrospective, and I'll, you know, maybe we'll do it together. I don't know uh, if if we ever find the time to really delve into what all, all the meanings and the metaphors and the mythologies behind this three volume uh, story. But this really puts the capstone on the origins of how the Amazons came to be, and it's it it's sort of uh, what I really like about it is the, these Amazons were essentially created by Hera, uh, working in working working her machinations with the other goddesses as sort of a sort of a way to uh, as a pushback against all the male gods Zeus and his chauvinism and the, and, and the male gods uh, but Hera herself sort of worked behind the scenes and it was it was these other gods that ultimately the god Hestia Artemis Demeter Hecate, Aphrodite, and Athena were the ones that were really the, 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 the six, they each formed their house, and there were six houses of Amazons, and Hippolyta, the first, the, the first Amazon, formed the seventh house of the Amazons, and unfortunately what happened is, one of the Amazons, uh, out of anger, out of revenge against one of the followers of the god Apollo, killed one of Apollo's worshippers uh, at the altar of Apollo last issue and Apollo found out and ultimately Zeus, Apollo tells Zeus and Zeus wants, they want to now wipe out the Amazons. And in this issue, uh, Zeus, uh, Zeus is angry and he's angry at Hera. He's, you know, now the, the existence of these Amazons, they're aware of them. And he sends uh, Hephaestus, his, his son, I, I always, I just call him uh, Heracles, sorry, he sends Heracles, his son, uh, to, to wipe out the Amazons. And of course, that doesn't go according to plan. Uh, it's This is a very different story than the one you're used to. Most people, when they think of Wonder Woman, you're going to think of the George Perez version of Wonder Woman because that's probably the most, in the modern age, that's the one that's the most predominant on people's minds. And in that one, Heracles rapes Hippolyta, subjugates the Amazons, and, and ultimately the Amazons rise up, etc., etc. This story is very different. This this is this has a different outcome. Uh, 
Heracles doesn't get uh, Hippolyta's girdle here. He, uh, Heracles is soundly defeated by the combination of all the, the goddesses that make up the patron goddesses of, of the Amazons. And the Amazons hold their own against the gods. And it was through the machinations of Hera that the Amazons are not wiped out. And the art here is just incredible. The, the battle sequence against Heracles, how the Amazons defeat him, the, 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 the combination of the violence and the also the, the, the idea of the peaceful warrior, even, even Hippolyta after, after defeating Heracles, you know, they, they actually were, they dismembered him. They, they absolutely obliterated Heracles, but they, they actually did so out of a sign of respect because they're dealing with the, this, this, the a God himself. And they felt, well, holding back against the God, you'd only insult the gods. And so Zeus himself wants to wipe out the Amazons, but Hera, the way Hera herself uses the vanity of the male gods against them, and the way that they they manipulate, they send uh, they send um, the one god um, uh, Dionysus, uh, who is sort of like the god of drama, and he 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 loves actors, and a lot of he Dionysus loves the Amazons, and he loves the way that they're they're good at theater, and Hera has Dionysus lie to Apollo, use Apollo's ego against them and Apollo wants to wipe out the Amazons and Dionysus says well I'm sure you want to wipe out the Amazons because they want to die they want to die they want to die in glory you, you don't want to deprive them of, of that do you and of course Apollo does so Apollo doesn't want to kill them so the, the, that's that's their it's like using reverse psychology tell Apollo the Amazons want to die for glory and then Apollo with through Zeus will de deny them the right to die. And, and so ultimately Zeus punishes the Amazons by caging them on Paradise Island where they can never leave and they can never infect the rest of humanity. And they, so now that's their cage. They resur Zeus resurrects all the Amazons, Amazons as punishment, resurrects them, even the ones that were killed and traps them on Themyscira, traps them on Paradise Island where they can never leave. And, and ultimately this ends with the birth of Diana. And we know that Diana will be the first Amazon to actually leave paradise. But that is a story for another day. And that's really the Cold Notes version. There's so much more I could talk about. But I really, I, I love the themes here. I loved the, the art. I loved the mythology. I loved, I, I thoroughly enjoyed Kelly Sue DeConnick's new way of looking. It's like she looked at the Amazons in their history through a different set of glasses. It, it was, it was beautiful. She looked at it through a different lens and she gave her own interpretation on it. And it actually, in my view, it propped up the Amazons. It made me feel more respect for the, for the Amazons, for the mythology. It, it possessed a degree of verisimilitude that I think the original origin lacked. Quite frankly, I think it propped up and it exemplified the 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 uh, the arrogance of of Zeus himself, and not in a not in a uh, a man versus woman way, but just in terms of the arrogance. Just Hera herself is quite is quite devious here too in the way she manipulates Zeus and uh, and the way that Apollo is manipulated and the way that Hera plays the gods against each other and the way even Hippolyta uses the gods and, and, and puts forth her case to Zeus to preserve the Amazons and to save them and not, not to wipe them out. And the manner in which it ends, even the, symbolically at the end when, 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 young Diana is born of clay and, and there's a coin at the end, uh, the coin representing the, 
the coin representing the I think the, the link to man's world coin being the the currency of of mankind of men and symbolizing that Diana will be the currency will be the manner in which the Amazons one day will reconnect with man's man's world I thought it worked very well Artemis writing the name of Diana in the sand at the end beautiful this thing was poetic this was beautiful I can't wait to buy the hardcover for this. I think as a hardcover, this would be, uh, you know, all three volumes are beautiful, but man, this is, uh, uh, this is extremely impressive. This is what I want. This is how good Wonder Woman could be if you take the time to really put your heart and soul into it like Kelly Sudaconic has, and I can't sing its praises enough. So what do you think? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. They've all been really good. The art in every single volume has been exceptional i love that we're getting to see different artists give us some of their best work it is all in service of telling the same story somewhat um and i I say somewhat because each of the volumes has had its own sort of distinct feel and it's hard to sort of pinpoint or put my finger on what the feel of this one is i I mean this one to me it felt like it had more I mean, it's it's, a, it's almost a war between the Amazonians and the gods. So it's it's sort of different. I think the first two volumes, the action was more political. You know what I'm saying? This one, it's more like act, they're actually fighting. It's actual action. Not to say one is better than the other, um, but this felt a little closer to kind of what you what we've seen before in Wonder Woman comics. You know, when we talk about the Amazonians going up against the gods and that sort of thing. So. I find that to be kind of interesting in, in, in a way. Um, and as mu- much as it's hard to say, you know, this artist is better than that artist or whatever, I, I, and I'm not going to say that, I will say personally, this is my favorite art. I, I just, Nicholas Scott's art style is just the art style that, that I enjoy the most of the three art styles that we've had so far. I mean, not, and that's not to put down the other two guys at, at all. But especially when you start talking about Nicola's run um, for DC Rebirth with Greg Rucka, uh, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed that as well. So it, it yeah, th- this was just something I like, I knew when Nicola was announced that she was going to be on this book that I was going to love it. And yeah, and I, that was 100% the case. Um, and I don't really have much more to, to add than, you know, what you said, like in, in terms of this version of the origin of the of the Amazons. Yeah, I mean, we could we could talk about this book for hours, but, you know, that's been the case with every one of these volumes, with every one of these issues so far. Like they've been so dense and, and it's clear that Kelly Sue is is hugely invested in the story that's being told here. So, um, yeah, it's it. It's hard. I don't know that you could overstate how fantastic these books have been. Um, And I will also say that we don't know 100% whether or not we're going to get more of this. I mean, it was only announced for three volumes. Obviously, we I personally hope that we get more. Um, But yeah, I mean, I there's no way to to know for sure whether that's going to be the case or not. Because I, I will say, even though this is a satisfying ending, it does it does feel like it's certainly a story that could continue. Yes, and, and the thing is, unfortunately, it's such a huge deviation from 
uh, the current Wonder Woman mythology in the Wonder Woman mainstream DC universe. I, I'm not even sure. I, I stand to be corrected on this. I don't believe I saw, I would like to see Wonder Woman Historia have its own Earth in the DC multiverse. I'm sure it has. We have an infinite number of Earths, but I, I, I very much would prefer to have a series of Wonder Woman stories set on this Earth, whatever the Wonder Woman Historia Earth is. I want more stories based in this universe, quite frankly. Yeah, I think the only problem is how long it would take those issues to come out. Because, uh, again, and, and yeah, I mean, you can see, I mean, it's oversized art, which, you know, the black label format, which you need, you need with this art to let it really shine. Um, but there's so many, I mean, we're talking Amazonians and gods at war, so many characters. Um, and yeah, nobody's phoning it in. This this art is just, just fantastic. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have The End the end, I'll put that in quotes, uh, of DC versus Vampires with issue number 12 written by James Tynan and Matthew Rosenberg. Art and colors by Otto Schmidt, Francesco Moratorino. I should have looked at these ahead of time. I'm not familiar with this, these last two artists. Pier Lu Luigi Casolino, letter by Tom Napolitano. Um, I, <laughs> man, where do I start here? Um, we get in... I, I, I'm reluctant to even call it an ending. We we get the end of this volume. That's that's how I'll put it. We get a resolution of Nightwing as the king of vampires. Not the resolution I was expecting. And I think it's very telling that the title of this issue is called Dawn, which you know a lot of a lot of people they're gonna associate the word dawn as a beginning, right? Like the dawn of the day, whatever. Uh, when it comes to vampires, maybe you think of Dawn as the, an ending, right? Oh, sun's coming up, vampires are over, the heroes saved the day, and they won, and, you know, Supergirl managed to get to Australia, and even though things didn't quite work out the way they thought with uh, with Captain Cold, and his cold gun, you know, blows up and he dies, but he does manage to allow uh, Kara to, to charge up, and so, yeah, happily ever after, right? Eh, not so fast. This is sort of exactly that once I saw that DC vampires sales were good enough to have spinoffs and one shots or whatever, this is exactly what I expected. Now, does that mean that this isn't what they had in mind all along? No, I wouldn't say that. Maybe Tynan and Rosenberg had this amb ambiguous quote unquote ending all along, which clearly is going to lead into the next one where we have a new leader of the vampires. It just left a it left a bad taste in my mouth. It was so cliched. Sometimes it's okay, writers. Sometimes it's okay to have the last issue, to have the ending, be an ending. Not everything has to be, you know, that horror movie where, oh, the monster's arm moves at the end, even though you thought he was dead. Like it's just, it's so old and tired at this point. Like, again, this is a hundred percent what I expected. It's not the end, just like with Deceased, and I'm sure it will be the same thing with Dark Knights of Steel. Um, enough people like this. Hey, let's you know keep telling stories. I'm sure this is a, uh, like you just said, a world in the DC multiverse. There's, there's an infinite number of them, but I'm not particularly interested in reading any more of this. Um, who's left to kill, by the way? We've had so many shock, shock killings at this point, you know? Who's not dead? So I'm, I'm, I'm over it, to be honest with you. Um, and as I've said all along, I'm a huge Otto Schmidt fan. 
I absolutely love his run on Green Arrow. But throughout the series, the art that he's done here has been looser, and I haven't enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed his previous work, and that continues in this particular issue. It does suit the sort of kinetic and violent uh, style uh, of this vampire story, and certainly his color work, again, lots of reds and oranges. Well, it's vampires. It's the end of the world. You, you would expect that. And they're darker, you know, uh, hues of those colors, you know, because, again, it's a darker palette overall. It's the end of the world. But just the way, like, think about the the way this thing was paced and plotted, you know. It started off so slow. You know, first couple issues take place over the same day. And then it speeds up to the point where months pass between issues. Um, so I thought it was a strange choice as well. Um, but again, I mean, they didn't, I imagine if they knew how successful this was going to be ahead of time, they would have taken their time. Probably, we probably wouldn't have got the, the shock killing that we got at the end of this issue, uh, until the end of the second volume. Um, and I, I've said before, like, I feel like the whole reason they picked Dick Grayson to be the Lord of the Vampires was because shock value, like the least likely person to, you know, turn evil as it were. Not that he sees himself as evil and he gives his kind of speech or whatever, but yeah, you can throw this up there with, uh, with, uh, Tom Taylor's Dick and Babs or, um, Sean Gordon Murphy's Dick and Babs. So again, it feels like cheap, cheap shock value to me to have her be the one that takes him out. But anyway, what, what were your thoughts? Well, I actually share every I agree with every comment you made but I'm just going to add I'm going to focus a little bit just more on the plot line here Barbara Gordon was an idiot what was her master plan apparently Barbara Gordon's plan to to defeat Dick Grayson the king of the vampires and this uh, this was apparently her plan her plan was to sacrifice herself all along and actually Correct me if I'm wrong. She actually planned to become queen of the vampires. She yeah, deli- yeah, yeah. she intentionally yeah, goes in. Yeah, yeah, she planned it. She she goes in knowing she knows Nightwing's going to bite her, and then and then she has Nightwing bite Harley. And Harley, we know from a previous one shot, Harley's blood will kill a vampire. So Nightwing then dies. Well, then Barbara becomes queen of the queen, the new queen. And because she's a queen, she's the automatic ruler. So Wonder Woman can't kill her. The, so she controls all the vampires. So then she's talking about ruling so she so she's just as bad as dick now she's possessed by whatever the vampire mind control is that suddenly she so she's she's now bad and meanwhile supergirl takes out martian manhunter and so supergirl's back on the on the playing field in australia okay so now we're gonna have like barbara gordon as queen of the vampires versus supergirl leading what's left of the human race uh in this issue called dawn moving forward into an infinite number of earths which which remember that dc vampires was one of the earths named in dc dark in dark crisis big bang so we know that this we already know that this universe has its own earth so that was probably a clue that this this story is not going to end but just from a plot perspective number one i'm i'm less interested in moving forward i, I if this was going to move forward i didn't want dick grayson to die to be honest with you i would have preferred that there'd have been will they or won't they maybe even a king or queen sort of uh, interplay between babs and dick so i, I disagree with the narrative choice made if this is going to be ongoing and second and you hit the nail on the head most of the interesting players are dead. They're off the playing field. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this this is not as fun to me moving forward. Now, I know people will, will say, okay, there's no such thing as, you know, there's, there's, 
doesn't matter what characters are left. You get a good writer, the good writer can make it work. Well, yeah, I guess, sure. And yeah, I guess, and even, even dead vampires aren't really dead. You can always bring them back too, I suppose. I don't know. It's harder, man. They turned to dust. They crumbled to nothing. Like, how do you put them, you know, like, are you going to bring back Hal Jordan or, uh, not Hal Jordan. You're going to bring back, um, um, Zan, right? Zan and Jaina, the, the half of the Wonder Chief. The guy got, got pureed. He got frappéed in a blender. You're going to bring him, how are you going to bring him back? Like, yeah. Yeah. I, and one, one, just one, one final, and it's a, it's a criticism here is that if you're going to drag, if there's going to be future stories on this, I would like, I never really got a sense as to the actual world itself. Every single issue, whether it was a one shot or this series or the black and white and red series, uh, all out war, everything had to do with the heroes battling heroes or villains battling heroes and infected battling. And I never got a sense of the larger world proper. I never got a sense. Everything was always so dark and gloomy and it was just hero versus villain, villain infected versus hero infected versus, and I never really, it, it wasn't like injustice where I got a good sense of what's left of the world at all times. It wasn't like a dark Knights of steel where I, where I feel I'm getting to know the world, the larger world proper in addition to the interchange and the character move motivations moving forward this very much was just one long battle sequence of 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 two kids in a sandbox playing with action figures and that's pretty cool but that's also why i wanted an ending <laughs> you know you know when i play with my action figures somebody wins and somebody loses <laughs> you know what i mean so i can kind of sympathize but i can kind of see dc like you said they got something successful here so they don't want it to go away so they can always go back to it i guess yeah it's just I don't know. I, there was potential for less cliche, I guess. I mean, at the end of the day, I, I guess that's my, my biggest complaint. It's just even the story that we got was just so like I, I could have seen this coming a mile away. Now, granted, this whole idea of Barbara was always planning on getting bit. That that came as a bit of a surprise, um, I, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the fact that we didn't really get an ending. Yeah, that wasn't a surprise in the in the slightest bit. So um, expect more DC versus vampires come going forward, like one hundred percent. So, uh, all right, moving on. Speaking of endings and and worlds, we know there this uh, comic has its own world as well. DC Mech finale from writer Kenny Porter, Baldemar Rivas is the artist, Mike Spicer on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Um, this, this is a case where certainly as the story went on, um, it got a lot better. I, I think once the quote-unquote infighting um, stopped between the, um, the, the these versions of Batman and, uh, and Superman and they actually started focusing on fighting Darkseid, it got a lot better. I'm still not a big fan of uh, saying that the – the mechs themselves are the, one, the things that have the superpowers or the superpowers of the, of the individuals power the mechs. I just like, why have a mech? Like just, just fight, you know, like why does Superman need to be inside a mech to uh, ultimately defeat dark side? So um, that's a little problematic for me. I am also not the biggest fan of Baldemar Rivas' style of art, um, but I get why they chose him as an artist because his style is, uh, much more of a manga style and the, this whole idea of people fighting in giant robots, you know, that's certainly uh, very much a, a manga idea in terms of, you know, Battletech or Robotech or any of that 
that sort of thing. So, um, so I thought this ultimately was just okay. I think I'd probably read better as a, as a trade than it did as the individual issues, but I still think, um, they leaned a little bit too much into the, Oh, Batman, Superman, and, and the rest of the heroes kind of fighting amongst themselves early on. And it didn't, didn't work as well for me as it could have. Um, I mean, because there's certainly a viewpoint that you could take where you could say, okay, this six issues is analogous um, to the first six issues of Jeff Johns' Justice League when the new 52 started, right? Like it's the, those, the heroes of the Justice League coming together. And that's what we see revealed um, at the end of this on, on the final pages with this version of this mech Justice League. We've got um, what I assume is Hawkman. We've got Green Lantern, we've got Batman, Superman, uh, and Flash. So very similar to, to you know what we had in the, the Jeff Johns run. So um, ultimately, it's okay, probably a bit forgettable. What did you, what did you think? Well, this is also a series that I uh, like, DCV Vampires. It also was designated its own Earth in, in Dark Crisis Big Bang. So we can always go back to DC Mech. I, I think that this is, uh, it's, it is somewhat of a tropey and cliche sort of combination of Transformers versus and combined with the DC heroes. But it's fun. Uh, I actually enjoyed this issue. I, this was my, my favorite so far. In, in previous issues, you did most of the talking because I kind of skim read the issues. I actually read this one and I enjoyed it. I love how Darkseid, when Darkseid sort of transforms into his Transformer mode, it's actually the entire planet that is Darkseid. That, I thought that was kind of cool because naturally when the mother box initiates conquer, Conqueror mode, you know, you, 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 the whole planet turns into a giant Darkseid, the ultimate mech. And I thought that was pretty cool. And that's some, uh, the visuals here were, were, were quite good. And the visuals actually in this entire series have been very, very good. And I can definitely see someone who is just, you know, you know, this story does have this six issues has a beginning, a middle, and an ending, and this actually has an ending that, oddly enough, it feels a little bit more satisfying than the one in DCV Vampires. If and I, which is kind of odd for me to say, but this the the, the bad guys defeated, Dark Side's defeated, and the Justice League of, of the Justice League Max or the Justice Squadron, as they're called, the Justice Squadron, they're now protecting Earth, and I can't remember the the number designated to this Earth, but um, I thought it, you know, this, this series accomplished what it needed to do, and you know, frankly, if you're going to come up with different ideas for different Earths, I suppose you could do worse than uh, Transformers and the and DC heroes combined, so. All in all, not bad. And I actually like the, I quite, I actually like the cover on this one too, with the the black and the red. I thought it was it was a nice combination. Yeah, again, I th I think there must be an audience for this. Um, I'd be curious. We'll we'll know how how much of an audience and how vocal they are by how quickly that we get a second series of this. So, uh, okay. Up next, we have Harley Quinn number twenty five from writer Stephanie Phillips. Artists are Matteo Loli and David Baldione. Colors by Rain Barreto. Letters by Darren Bennett. We found out last issue that the person that killed Harley and you know, necessitated her being resurrected in a Lazarus pit by uh, by her sidekick Kevin was uh, the Harley who laughs last. So this issue, this issue kicks off who killed uh, Harley Quinn chapter four with us getting a glimpse of um, old lady Harley. Um and she travels back and ends up meeting up with our Harley and fighting against the the Harley who laughs. And apparently the Harley who laughs is going around trying to kill all the Harleys of the multiverse. 
which if there's an infinite number, like we were just talking about, isn't, wouldn't that be an impossible task? Like she'd never be able to actually finish it. Um, and so old lady Harley and the Harley, uh, of the main DCU team up to take on, um, the Harley who laughs last with a little assist from killer frost. Um, but she's not that easily defeated and it looks like we're going to have a whole host of different Harleys from different multiverses show up. Um, we get that final scene to be continued and we see a bunch of different versions of Harley. One's like a pirate Harley with a, uh, eye patch. One's the Batman animated series with the old school costume and the hammer. And we've got uh, one that looks like almost an, an imp, a fifth dimensional imp. We've got a robotic looking one. Um, we've got one that looks uh, Asian, I guess. So yeah, a bunch of different Harleys. One's a mermaid. Um, I don't know. All, the, all I could think when I saw this image was at some point, shouldn't there be like a council of Harleys uh, that are like, I don't know, passing judgment on things or... Um, I think that would be a fun idea, but anyway, if you're a Harley fan, um, you're going to love this because, uh, it, we're certainly getting like a lot of Harley for, for your dollar, for your comic dollar, a lot of, a lot of bang for your buck here. Um, and it's fun. It's fun. And it feels very Harley, maybe the most traditionally Harley Quinn story that Stephanie Phillips has given us throughout her run. Um, I thought the art was fantastic, was particularly old lady Harley. Like I love the way that she looks, um, especially under the uh, David Baldion on the David Baldion art pages. She just looks fantastic. So yeah, I, I'm enjoying this. This is just fun, lighthearted Harley where you don't have to think too much. And so um, not to say that it's bad when you have to think, I love comics that make me think. Um, and Stephanie Phillips has given us a lot to, to think about in terms of Harley and redeeming her and, and whatnot. So, um, but it feels like she's going out on a, as I said, a traditional Harley story. That's just a, a whole heck of a lot of fun with, yeah, many, many different versions of Harley. So we'll see how it all plays out. What are your thoughts? Well, I wish, I wish she would make us think because she's uh, missing out on an opportunity here. And, and unfortunately just when she's finishing her run, because you know, there's, there's some moments here where there's actually moments between the old Harley who is 50 years old and this young Harley who, uh, let's say she's 25 because it, it is a Harley Quinn issue 25. In any event, we got a young Harley and an old Harley and they're intermingling and they know that ultimately they're going to be facing the Harley who laughs. And we know the Harley who laughs is if it's anything like Batman who laughs. So they, you know, at least our Harley knows that they're, they're going to be they're going to have their hands full. Uh, but at one point, you know, Harley wonders about the other Harleys in the universe, the multiverse. And she says, some, some of us, we might meet some Harleys who, who left, who never left the Joker or some who maybe even never met him. And imagine what we, we must be like in those other universes. The, those questions are posed here, but we're never going to get the answers to them. Instead, unfortunately, everything's played for a joke at the end. And I get it. That's a choice. This is a Harley comic. You can go zany. You can go crazy. But... Uh, I personally would uh, would love a deeper exploration. I would actually like to see a Harley. Now, we, 
you and I both know we get all kinds of different iterations of Harley in, in pop culture as it is. And we've gotten that in the, in the black label series with Harleen and we've gotten that in other iterations and what have you other black label stories. Uh, nonetheless, this is the multiverse that you can play with. You're playing with a multiverse of Harleys. And unfortunately I think we, the reason why I'm, I'm a little disappointed so far is that we, we, the final page, we get all these other versions of Harley, and all we are getting is different artistic renditions of Harley. Okay, we get a Harley Mite, a Batmite version, and then we get like a small infant child Harley. Then we get what looks like maybe a black Harley, uh, and then a pirate Harley, and a traditional Harley, and then a fairy Harley, and a mermaid Harley, and blah, 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 blah. That's all well and good, but th those are visual representations. I want character work. I want to get to know these characters. I like that next issue. Yeah, no, I, I hope we do. I want, I hope we do. And, and I say that, and it may sound, maybe it's an underhanded compliment that I'm getting. I, I intend it as, as a compliment. I don't want to be, I don't want to be, have this be a put down because I like the idea. I like what, what Stephanie Phillips has done here, has introduced us. If we're going to get the, a multiverse of Harleys, you know, instead of just, you know, a bunch of Harleys telling the same joke or trying to tell a different punchline. I'd like to see some character work here. And and there were moments here between old Harley and our Harley that I thought were particularly heartfelt. And they looked like they were going somewhere, but they were always interrupted by some superfluous action or some some other something else going on. And I um, I just thought that there was uh, missed opportunities here. But you know, again, fantastic art, great action sequences, and there were some there was some good art uh, there was some even some funny dialogue with uh you know with old old woman harley saying she couldn't imagine a multiverse where she'd ever be caught dead wearing that and pointing to another harley and or to the harley harley who laughs and there were some moments here but i just i'm still hoping that this uh, we get a little bit more uh, hopefully some more character work but unfortunately we, we might not because it's just too close to the end of uh phillip's run yeah, I mean, I, I, I see your point, and if that's what you're looking for, yeah, we may or may not get it. I, I, I'm i not a, enough of a Harley fan to really care if I get character work on the Harley Mermaid version. It's enough. Those heart, those heartfelt moments between old Lady Harley and, and regular Harley are enough for me. So, But yeah, I mean, somebody who's a bigger Harley fan may may want more. But you would if you had something like a Council, council of Harleys, like I said, and having them you know play off of each other, so... Uh, all right, up next, Tim Drake Robin, number four, from writer Megan Fitzmartin, Riley Rosmo on art, Lee Luffridge on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. We get the reveal of the villain who has been killing people and sending these weird ghost-like apparitions uh, against Tim. Um, I'm still not a fan of Riley Rosmo's art. Uh, it works better on some series than others. In fact, we were just talking about Harley. I feel like it works better on Harley than it does on, on Tim Drake. Um, but I do feel like he is settling in on Tim Drake and this is the best art we've seen on the series so far, kind of the tightest, um, line work and the best storytelling in my mind. Um, and we're also feels like we're getting some good, solid forward momentum on the story with Tim finally, con you know, confronting this villain. I, I don't think this is a villain that's we've seen before. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, when he does talk to Tim, he says, I want to be the best villain. What does the best villain have? Dapper costume, killer name, most of all, worthy opponent. So it seems like he's trying to make a name for himself uh, fighting against Tim Drake Robin. He certainly has some long hair um, and s some interesting style and in clothes, which 
Riley Rosman does a fantastic job <laughs> of rendering this villain. Um, kind of has this two-tone face too. It's kind of kind of interesting. So I guess we'll find out who it is at some point. Um, I know that this series, some, it, it seems to be a bit divisive. Um, I think Megan Fitzmartin is juggling a lot of a lot of different things, and it's it's a challenge. I don't know that she's, uh, you know, I know she's not trying to please everybody. She's just trying to tell the best story that she can. Um, and you know, you're going to have traditional Tim Drake fans are like, don't like the fact that he's in a same sex relationship. You're going to have others that don't like the fact that he's sort of isolated from the rest of the, the bat family. Uh, or I should say not the bat family, but from, from Bruce himself. Um, cause he does reach out to the, the bat girls here. He does reach out to Stephanie and, uh, and Cassandra Kane. So it does feel like overall DC editorial is pushing like, a younger feeling, younger feeling versions of these characters. You know, we, we Rocky and I have talked a lot about it in the Batgirl series, how young uh, Cassandra and Stephanie feel. And, and yeah, this is, you know, Tim should be in his early to mid twenties by this point, but he feels very much like, I don't know, 19 years old. So I don't know if that's a editorial choice or just a coincidence um, from the writers. Maybe it's just DC's picking pitches that tend to feel more young. I'm not, not 100% sure, but uh, I look forward to having Megan Fitzmartin on the show at some point to talk about this, um, hopefully sometime soon. So uh, I know you haven't been a fan of the series. What do you think of this issue? Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm still not a fan of the series. I've, um, I'm, I'm not collecting the physical copies of this, which is pretty rare because I'm, you know, this and uh, there's only it's only maybe two or three DC series that I'm not getting. And this this is one of them. I, I don't like it. I don't I'm not a fan of the story. I still don't think the story makes any sense. I've and I've got no desire to really try to figure out exactly what's going on. But I did read this and I actually read this issue twice. Uh, and I, the the mystery that Fitzmartin, writer Megan Fitzmartin is trying to create here is just it's just not coming together very well. Um. I just uh, it, it it just doesn't make any sense. It's old old school laser print paper with ciphers on it linked to books that this new villain, who frankly looks like a flamboyant gay man from the seventies, uh, which would be in keeping with basically her theme for the entire thing. Uh, to what end? And then the floating white discs that I made fun of and joked about apparently make their appearance again. And the floating white discs create an object from one of the books that apparently Tim Drake thinks is part of some mystery. And I don't know, for some reason, this guy, this this new villain, this this the best villain, which is if that's his name, uh, what a what is what an unoriginal name. I, I don't understand. I just don't get it. Apparently, people on the marina are getting killed. The bad guys want to clean out the marina, but they they the marina is being rented. And even Tim Drake, who's I'm sure a, a multimillionaire, he's got a huge fund related to Bruce being part of Bruce Wayne's family. There, uh, for some reason, he's got to pay rent at the marina because it's owned by the city or something. And uh, people in the marina are being slowly uh, they're they're being fired so they don't have a job so they can't pay their rent around the marina so they, they they can get evicted and what that has to do with murders i i really don't know i i find it interesting that the other comic book that i'm also not buying uh, <laughs> the bat girls naturally they make an appearance in this comic another comic that i'm not regularly buying the physical copy of um I, you know, you sort of said it, it's, it's, 
I, I don't know why the Batgirls are even necessary here. I don't know why, but I mean, anything to make this book maybe a little bit more interesting. But I, I just don't get it. I, I don't understand the appeal of this comic. Uh, it's, it's, it's just fair to say that it's, it's not for me. Uh, this, but I will say that this story itself is, it's, it's just really, really hard to get into. This is not an interesting story to me at all. And then Bernard, there, there's, it was actually, Bernard actually at one point, he, he actually couldn't tell. He showers, he sends, you know, he has Robin last issue in, in, his, in, in his boat in the marina. He doesn't recognize that, that Tim Drake is Robin yet. And he's, it's, it's almost like he's being flirty with Robin and it's just, I don't know, it just, it just gives me, it just gives me the willy-nilly's. I mean, it's just, the, th the thing is just creepy in an uncomfortable way. And it, the, the artistic style doesn't help. And uh, uh, I'll just stop talking. But I, this, this is definitely not, not for me. And I, you know, you say it very diplomatically. I, th uh, there's at least three people I know at the comic shop that, that I frequent, long-time <laughs> friends of mine, and, and, and two of them are huge Tim Drake fans, and they are absolutely eviscerated and heartbroken at this series. And I, because I, I go to them and say, what am I missing? And they say, you're not missing nothing. They don't like it either. Uh, and they don't like it. I, I, I'm, I'm actually defending this to them saying, well, you know, this isn't that bad. Well, it's this or that. I'm explaining it to them. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give this, this plot line here in, in Robin some, some credence. And um, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't, I don't know what Tim Drake is doing. I don't know why he's there. I don't know why he wants to be a college dropout. I don't know why he wants to live in a shithole on the marina. I don't know why he's restricting himself to uh, such a limited uh, dating circle, uh, having just, you know, had a great girlfriend. But, I mean, I guess that's up to him. I don't know... I mean, how far the mighty have fallen. I mean, he used to be Batman's, the, arguably the best Robin, and look where he is now. Oh, my God. I mean, I just, I mean, honestly, I just, I just throw my hands up in the air when I think of how, where, where DC thinks they want to take this character. And, uh, man, get rid of Bernard. God, it's, it's killing this title. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Get rid of this. Anyways, I'm done ranting. <laughs> yeah, you're like I, I'm gonna stop talking, and then you went on. You went on. <laughs> uh, I, you just, I mean, you think you think uh, Bernard is just a really like a bad character. Like, I, yeah, he, he's he's just he he just makes the character he makes Tim look stupid, and and and, and makes Tim look, and Tim is stupid the way he is around Bernard, and it it just doesn't it just doesn't work. It just it doesn't work, uh, and and the way that they, the, she's forcibly trying to put Bernard into these stories, and, and why, and 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 even taking Tim Drake, he's he's not even he's not even he's got no connection to the Bat family, not really. He's now he's just living on a boat. Is he is he broke? And, and and she tries to create the illusion of Tim Tim Drake being broke by saying, "Well, no, I'm going to make him pay rent, even though he's a billionaire. I'm going to make him pay rent, uh, because, so Tim I'll Drake put him on a marina." Tim Drake, Tim Drake is not a billionaire. He's not a billionaire. He's a, he, he, he he's got more money than you or I have in the bank. That I can guarantee. Yeah, 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 that is true. That is true. I think the point. I think the point, and this is what we'll talk about when Megan comes on, is he's trying to figure out who he is. Now. I, I don't I don't know that this series necessarily for me either, but I'm certainly getting more out of it than than you are. And I do not 
like when you say that Bernard makes Tim look stupid, I like I don't get that at all. If anything, Bernard's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, you know, but to have Tim, somebody that, you know, he's intimate with or whatever, and he's sitting right there just because he has this domino mask on, you can't tell it's him. Like, forget about the whole shower thing or whatever, just him sitting there. But then you could say the same thing. You could say the same thing for the last eight decades of anybody who's spent any time with Clark Kent and spent any time with Superman. So I'm not going to, you know, blame Megan Fitzmartin and say, oh, this Bernard is a complete moron because, you know, he can't tell that Robin and Tim Drake are the same person. You could say the same thing. I mean, Batman's got half his face covered. I don't care if somebody's got half their face covered. You can still tell who people are, you know, just because you lower your voice and talk like this. I'm Batman. It doesn't mean you can't figure out who people are. And there's none of that. There's no cowl on Tim Drake. He just wears this little, the tiniest mask possible, what's called a domino mask. That does not... Like, how would you, the hair is the same. The voice is going to be the same. Like, it's ludicrous to think that Bernard would not know that that's Tim Drake and Robin are one and the same. But again, you could say the same thing about before how Jordan and Green Lantern, before the, his identity was revealed. You could say the same thing about Superman, whose identity just got put back in the, uh, you know, back in the bottle, Genie put back in the bottle. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um so, yeah, I mean, is this the perfect comic? No. Um, can I respect what Megan Fitzmartin is trying to do? Yeah, I can respect what she's trying to do 100%. And I get that she's getting a lot of pushback from those people that say, hey, Tim Drake's my favorite Robin. This doesn't make any sense. You know, Tim Drake's my favorite Robin, and this does make sense to me. But I've had the advantage of talking to Megan and understanding, you know, where she's coming from. And it does make a lot of sense. Um, and she can put it more eloquently than me, but I'll just say this, right? That Tim has always been a character that defined himself by the challenges that he faced in terms contextually of how other people perceived him, right? Like, I want to be Robin because I figured out that Bruce Wayne is Batman. So I want Bruce Wayne's approval. I want Batman's approval. There's some hero worship going on there. So Tim's worth is in proving to Bruce Wayne that he's worthy to be Robin. You know, same thing with his father. Same thing when he, uh, you know, he wants to prove that he's a good son, prove that he's capable. His, you know, his father found out he was Robin. His mother was killed, whatever. All that adds to, to him, but they're all external. Those are all external forces. Then look at that, um, that series, um, the Chuck Dixon series that ran, you know, for 100 plus issues in the, in the 90s into the early 2000s. A lot of that was Tim going to school. A lot of that was Tim Will he, won't he have a relationship with Stephanie Brown? And, and again, it's Tim, you know, being the smartest guy in class and having the expectations and, you know, getting good test scores or whatever. That's all to get the approval of those around him, right? Again, it's all external. It's all external with Tim. When you stop and think, okay, who are you? Who? What's your self-identity? I, I, I don't know that Tim's ever discovered that. And I think, I think, again, I don't want to put words in her mouth. But I think that's what Megan is trying to do here. Like if you strip all that other stuff away, right? Like take away Bruce Wayne, take away the mansion, take away his family money, take away high school, you know, support, take away uh, that other supporting cast he had in Titans Detective Run, take away any sort of structure with him going to college and, and strip him down bare bones. Who is Tim Drake? Who is Tim Drake to himself? Like I think that's what she's going for. And again, we'll talk about it when she comes on the show, but 
I, I, I'm a hundred percent on board with, with that. And I think Tim comes out better on the other side. Um, and I never liked him. And I'm not saying that I'm a big fan of Bernard um, or his relationship with Bernard, but I can't stand Stephanie Brown either. And I don't want him with Stephanie Brown. I'd rather see him, whether it's a man or a woman um, with somebody who's has a little more substance. Cause to me, and again, we haven't gotten a lot of characterization for Bernard, but to me, Bernard, he's sort of a little bit of a limp noodle to me. Like there doesn't seem to be much to him other than, it's kind of like, right, their relationship is defined by the fact that they're kind of both in their first same-sex relationship. And so it seems like there's this, like, lovey-dovey, cutesy kind of thing going on between them. And I, I would prefer a more mature romantic relationship, whether it's with a man or woman, I don't care. Um, but and but again, that, that might also be because this Riley Rosmo art is – it's a juvenile style, you know, as much as it's a loose style and a, a stylized – version of comic art. And so I find it very telling that the two books you're not buying are the ones that have that style of art. So I think that goes a long way toward establishing the tone of the book. But I, I don't, uh, I mean, look, deconstruction when it's done right. And you're talking about a form of deconstruction, the way she's deconstructing Tim Drake. And there's different ways that you can go about it. Uh, I, I, I don't, I disagree. I don't think it's deconstruction. Deconstruction would be, you know, you take him if he's at a certain point and you kind of break him down to build him back up. She's stripping away all those external forces that defined him. Deconstruction. That's a form of deconstruction. What she's doing here is she's taken him out. She's make them. She's made him to me virtually unrecognizable. This is not the Tim Drake I know at all. Now, granted, I, I wasn't the number one Tim Drake fan. He's my my least favorite Robin, straight up. But it. But if if this is the way to get me interested in him, okay, break him down. I, I would rather have do a born again, rip this guy a new. I mean, put him through the ringer here. W what's she doing? I mean, he's just suddenly decided. Well, he's not going to live with Bruce. He's not going to go to college. He's just going to meander around and find himself. That's the point. He doesn't know. The point is he doesn't know who he is. That is not okay. We've talked about this before. We've talked about this before with Tim because you went because you went to high school, then went to college, then went to law school and knew exactly what you wanted to do and followed your path or whatever. That's great for you. And maybe that's exactly why this book is not for you. But there's plenty of young people out there who are going to identify with Tim because they don't know. There's people that went to high school, then went to college and changed their major six times because they didn't know what they wanted to do. That's what Tim, that's this Tim Drake. He doesn't well, know. Obviously, it's this Tim Drake. I'm just, I'm just saying it's, I, I don't find, I, I don't find it particularly compelling. But, but hey, I hope you're right. And that, and look, let a lot of people, that this speaks to a lot of people. I just, it's, I, I need the story. I, I get if this is a young man trying to find himself, but I wish this, this story is just, it's not, it's not grabbing me in the manner in which it's, it's going about doing so. It's just, it's just not I working. Mean, you say you, 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 she's, so who's Tim Drake? Like when you think about, okay, I, I can define Dick Grayson, you know, he's the one that embodies heroism in the DC universe, you know, and I can define Jason Todd. He's, you know, this bitter, uh, Robin who carries a chip on his shoulder because Bruce didn't save him from the Joker. You know, I can define Damien as this legacy character who feels like he has his father's uh, mantle to prove himself worthy of. And then when I get to Tim Drake, I'm like, okay, well, he's really smart. Oh, wait, that's not, I don't have to deal with his personality. Well, 
He's this guy who's always looking to please other. Oh wait, that's not. There's, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's nothing internal. Where, where's, where's the internal definition of Tim Drake? I don't feel like we've ever gotten it. Like this story that Megan's telling. I think the seeds have been planted, like all along. The clues were there, and that's why I kind of have a problem when people go that she's she's ruining him or she's, you know, uh, contradicting everything that came before. I, I don't. I I just feel like. He Tim Drake in a lot of ways has been a plot device. He hasn't been a fully realized character. And I never realized it until I had the conversation with with Megan. So again, maybe that's the key. Maybe that's why I'm enjoying this and, and others aren't. I don't know. Okay. Well, I, I, I respect the fact that you got, you got that out of your conversation w- with Megan. Uh, he was a fully realized character under Chuck Dixon. And, uh, and I think that, I mean, that, that wasn't a hundred issues of fluff. That was character development. And this to me, just, this creates, this sort of says that he was a blank slate and Megan is now trying to fill in the blanks and, and maybe for a new generation, that's all well and good. I thought, I thought he's not quite as much of a blank slate as Megan is is approaching the, the, this character uh, as. And and again, you know, look, I've said this before. No matter how much I take issue with this story, any bad, any story is only any character is only one good story away from being interesting. I just don't find this story particularly compelling, and I'm not really sure that what whatever path he's on right now. Um, I guess I guess if you don't know where you're going, any direction matters, right? That's how I feel about Tim Drake. He doesn't know where he's going. Readers don't know where Where's he's going, he go? so where it doesn't matter go? where he's going, does it? So where, I guess where should he go? go? I mean, we, 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 we talked, talked about this when we talked about. That's up to the writer to make it interesting and compelling. You find it interesting and compelling, and I don't. And I guess we're just gonna have to leave it at that. And I will happily, if this suddenly ends up with a revelation where this, oh, I'll say, aha, that's where this is going. I got no problem putting my foot in my mouth because I've done that before. But I just don't see where I don't see any anything on the horizon where I'm going to look with with raw with you know, Tim okay. Drake. Where where are any where are any of the Young Justice characters going? Whether it's Tim Drake or Bart Allen or Cassie Sandsmark, we talked about or or even uh, Connell to some extent. Like we talked about this when when we talked about those characters, right? Like DC has. Because they have now created new versions, you know, whether it's, you know, Wallace West or Damian Wayne or Yara Floor or whatever. Now their focus is on the new. And it's like, where, where do you, where are those 90s legacy characters? Like they didn't, they've left them nowhere to go. You know what I mean? Like, like uh, anyway. S- sadly, no, I, I don't disagree with you. So, but uh, yeah, but, but this is, I, I think our, our discussion here sort of underscores the, the frustration that we readership that that the readership has on both sides. I mean, you, you know, you're more in support, and I'm I'm less so. And it's just sort of like uh, the vagaries of uh, and the joys of reading comic books. So uh, hope it'll be interesting to see what what the future like of Tim Drake holds. Those, I feel like all those young Justice characters are getting the short end of the stick. Like I love Cassie Sandsmark. Cassie Sandsmark is one of my favorite DC characters, and I don't feel like she's ever gotten her due. So, uh, all right. Up next, I don't have much to say about this at all, other than I'm just not caring for it. Um, speaking of books that, that aren't for me. <laughs> so maybe I feel about this the way you feel about Tim Drake Robin. Punchline, The Gotham Gang, Part 3. Tinny Howard, Blake Howard, writers. Max Rayner, artist. Luis Guerrero, colors. Becca Carry on letters. Um, 
I don't understand punchline at all. She seems totally psychotic and insane and like, uh, I can't form complete sentences. I can't think logically. I like, why would anybody want to have anything to do with her or be within 50 yards of her? She's completely nuts. Like, you know, you, you know, you have, I don't know if you've ever met one of those people that when they drink, like they can go from being like super happy, super excited, whatever, to like despondent crying, ready to kill themselves. And then five minutes later, they're happy again, you know? that that's that's punchline like she's just i don't know maybe i've i've dealt with too many drunk people in my life when i was bartending in college um this is just not enjoyable not not at all i i just don't care for punchline as a character um it's a struggle for me to read this maybe it's my prejudice against a character that i i go into each issue going oh my god i have to read about punchline um but yeah I, to me there's nothing entertaining or redeeming about this series. The art is solid. Color works great. Um, it's paced pretty well, but um, the dialogue to me is cringy and the story is just something I'm not in the least bit interested in. I've said it before, whether it's a Joker or whether it's punchline, you know, get an actual superhero there and it'll take about five seconds and throw her in a deep, 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 dark hole, throw it sol solitary confinement or whatever. I lock her up and throw away the key, and I don't ever need to see this character ever again. There is not a character at DC Comics that I dislike more than Punchline, with the exception of Amanda Waller. Like, the more I read of Punchline and the more I see her, the more I dislike her. She's a horrible, horrible character in my mind. Um, and I, I, yeah, I could go the rest of my life and never read another punchline story and be perfectly happy. So. Well, you're just, you're just like poking the bear. You really want me to defend her now. Okay. Coming off, coming off our Robin debate. Okay. Well, uh, I didn't, I, I interjected. So I, uh, I will, I will try to, uh, first of all, I, I think punchline is still a character in, in need of desperate development. Now, what the, what this issue does is writer uh, Teeny Howard and Brian Howard. Now we should remember that Teeny Howard is also the writer of Catwoman, and just we just came off Catwoman issue fifty, where Punchline w was essentially involved in a debacle where Catwoman tried to defeat Punchline. Punchline escaped. Cat Catwoman ended up uh, uh, protecting Batman and ended up killing Valmont. Cat Selina is now in jail, and Punchline has fled the scene and has basically gone back to the the Royal Flush Gang. They were injured during in Catwoman 50 and a number of her characters were really were badly injured and um uh, punchline at one point in this issue this is a key issue in one respect and um uh, uh just a spoiler alert I'm not a big uh, I'm still not a big punchline fan however I do want to it should it should be worth noting what Teeny Howard and Brian Howard are trying to do and I so, thank Howard. you, Blake Howard. What Teeny and Blake Howard are trying to do here, they're trying to give Punchline some reason to exist, which is exactly what what underscores your frustration with the character and mine. You know, why does this character exist? I mean, she was she's cool to look at. She's a fashion. She, she looks sexy and cool and she looks all, you know, you know, like the, the sexy, crazy bitch or whatever but here she she ends up killing a, a, a businessman in a penthouse in gotham and she and this she's brutally beat this guy and the guy actually looks like the the, the joker and out of the blue punchliner hallucinates this guy talking to her 
the, the Joker talking to her. And it's through that conversation. It's an interesting conversation. The Joker's basically saying, you know, well, what, what good is a, what good is a joke with no punchline? He's, it's almost as if we, the reader are talking to punchline and taunting her saying, you know, what are you doing? What's your purpose? And she basically, Punchline basically says that she, she's not doing this for the Joker. She says that. She says she's not doing it for the Joker. She's doing it because she wants the Joker's rep. The Punchline here, she wants to, she wants to dump, dump some toxic waste into some reservoir. She wants to have Joker's rep. She wants to have his reputation. She wants to get the attention. She's an attention seeker. That's what she wants. And that's, and this ties into her being wanting to manipulate social media she she wants to be she likes the reputation she feeds off the attention and we got that in the punchline backup series in the joker which i hated i didn't like it i thought it was badly written but the ongoing theme was that she manipulated the media she manipulated events she paid off witnesses killed witnesses and she eventually got got away with murder literally and then she was released from prison and here she is trying to build up a rep and she she's not she's got no problem becoming a criminal again as but she, and she wants to one day have the reputation of the Joker, and it doesn't really work for me here. But I, I, I actually think where this particular issue shines is more with the Royal Flushing Gang. We got more about this this character Bluff, uh, One Eye Jack characters. It's it's the Punchline uh, Gang itself. Even Harper Rose's brother, who has a relationship with Bluff, who is actually playing two sides. He's actually uh, this Bluff character is actually. Uh, a member of the Royal Flush Gang. He's almost like a double agent. He's he's a sidekick to Punchline, but he's also our Harper Rose brothers' lover. And Punchline ends up, and we get a rematch in the uh, of the Harper Rose Punchline fight at the end of the Punchline backup series. But Punchline ultimately escapes, and uh, ultimately Punchline takes off at the end, and it's it's ultimately. I would say it's it's interesting. Um, I have to give Teeny Howard some props here because I I think the Howards had had the unenviable task of putting lipstick on the pig of that punchline backup series, which I thought was terrible. And they have the unenviable task because James Tinian, who created the character, never really gave the character a purpose. And we thought the character might have a purpose, but related to the Joker. And I personally think the punchline is more interesting as a sidekick to the Joker as a Harley Quinn who's still obsessed with the Joker but they didn't do that instead they want to I don't know they want to give punchline more agency give her more independence but now all she is is just another one note villain and I personally wanted her to be more in, in control of the uh, I wanted her to be a little bit more uh, beholden to the Joker. I wanted her to be a little bit more of a sidekick for a while before they rushed to some sort of defining of who she is about trying to get the rep of the Joker too quick. I'm going to choose to have faith in the Howards here that Teeny Howard and, and Blake Howard uh, are maybe going to punchline. She has to get her comeuppance here. She has to be defeated. If she if she's not defeated, if this series ends with her running off into the freaking sunset, if, she, if this doesn't end with her being defeated, humiliated, and put in jail, just like the, you know, then how can she ever get the Joker's rep if she's never caught and constantly defeated but never caught? I, I don't, I feel that this is so wishy-washy with the way they're handling and approaching this character, but I, at least they're trying something. This is still a hell of a lot better than the backup series, and uh, I'm going to, 
the jury's still out in terms of whether or not Teeny and Blake Howard can, can, can nail the landing on this series. So I'm prepared to uh, see this through to the end. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, and maybe it's if if James Tynan doesn't leave Batman when he does, then she does get more character development and it ends up working. But yeah, it's just, I, again, I mean, I wasn't a fan when they created her, right? Like I thought it was a poor choice. I mean, it was great that we got Harley away from the Joker and away from that, you know, depiction of domestic violence and codependence and unhealthy relationship, whatever. And then you, I mean, at least she's not, as beholden to the Joker as Harley was back in the day, but she's just not a character. Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a testament to how good of a character she is that I can't stand her. You're supposed to not like her. Right. So kudos to all, everybody involved with punchline. Yeah. I can't stand her. Good job. You succeeded. Uh, all right. Moving on. Tales from earth six, a celebration of Stan Lee. So if you're not familiar, earth six back in the day, um, there were these, stories uh where Mar marvel stan lee came over to dc and was like well if i had created the dc universe this is what it would have been uh and i think the line was called tangent uh back in the day so we have stan lee's versions of batman superman wonder woman the flash green lantern shazam aquaman catwoman sandman and the Justice League of America. So uh, it's a big anthology, 107 pages, maybe a few extra covers here, so probably a 100-page giant. The Batman story is by Michael Uslan, Lee Weeks on art. The art is fantastic in that story. Trish Mulvihill on colors, Clayton Cowell on letters. Superman uh, by Mark Wade. Not exactly the Superman uh, that Mark Wade wants to be writing, but Mark Wade's the writer. Kevin McGuire is the artist. Rosemary Cheatham on colors and Troy Petrie on letters. Wonder Woman story by Stephanie Williams. Belen Ortega is the artist. Jordi Belair on colors. Becca Carey on letters. Flash stories by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad. Pablo M. Collar is the artist. D. Cunniff on letters. Steve, uh, sorry, D. Cunniff on colors. Steve Wands on letters. Green Lantern story by Kenny Porter. Carl Mostert is the artist. Ramula Fajardo Jr. on colors. Dave Sharp on letters. Shazam story by Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing. Juan Ferreira on art and colors. Becca Carey on letters. Aquaman story by Zach Thompson. Hayden Sherman is the artist. Nick Filardi on colors. Hassan Atzman Elhal on letters. Catwoman story by Megan Fitzmartin. Anthony Marquez on pencils. Mark Morales on inks. Dave Stewart on colors with Pat Broso handling the letters. And the Sandman stories by Steve Orlando. Max Dunbar is the artist. Sebastian Chang on colors. Steve Wands on letters. And then finally, the JLA story is written and drawn by Jerry Ordway. Glenn Whitmore handles the colors. Pat Barroso handles the letters. So overall, the quality of these stories is pretty high, um, especially when you start talking about who is drawing some uh, or writing and drawing some of these like Mark Wade and Kevin McGuire. Like I'll read any comic those guys put out and I'm probably going to enjoy it because that's fa a fantastic writer and a fantastic artist. Um, I, I think the, the problem for me when it comes to Stanley's versions of these characters is if Stanley had created these DC characters back at the time when he created the Marvel characters in the early sixties, then I think a lot of these characters would probably work. The problem is like, if you look at characters like, I don't know, Fantastic Four, X-Men, Spider-Man, whatever, any of the really famous Stanley characters uh, that he created along with uh, 
artists, you know, back in the day, Jack Kirby or Steve Ditko or, or whomever, um, you're talking about characters that have evolved over time, right? Like, yes, the argument could be made that they've not as evolved as much maybe as they should have, you know, like Peter Parker and a lot of these characters will be dead by now, right? If they aged in real time, they were created, you know, 80 years ago. Uh, and if they're 20 years, I'd be a hundred, you know, like it doesn't, it doesn't make sense mathematically. Um, but the thing is that those stories were a bit more, I don't want to say simple, but maybe a bit more innocent in a lot of ways because times and storytelling back then were less complex than they are now. And so when you create these characters, and again, this was something Stanley did the tangent, like late nineties, early two thousands. So even this is like 20, 25 years ago. Um, so I, I think as time goes on and storytelling, especially in comics has become more mature and more complicated, it makes it harder for these stories, which have a little bit of that sort of innocent, um, throwback early Marvel era feel. It, it makes them harder to feel like relevant to now and the stories that we have now. So that's the problem that I have with these stories. Not that these characters wouldn't work you know they're they're definitely funhouse mirror versions of the characters that we're used to seeing um and i think uh there's also some who's who type pages in the back with some fantastic artists like jim lee does the wonder woman uh rendition and uh, she looks fantastic um but i i think these characters would work if you know on a long enough timeline but on a truncated timeline they work less well um my favorites are probably Sandman of all things. Um, and this is not the Morpheus version of, of Sandman. This is more, um, well, almost a mix between the Wesley Dodd Sandman and uh, with a little bit of supernatural thrown in. Uh, and, and probably the version of Superman that, that Mark Wade gives us here, which is obviously originally uh, written by Stan Lee. So overall, like I said, the quality of the stories is good. If you've never read any of the tangent stuff, um, and you're curious, this is certainly a good book to pick up because it gives you a good feel of who each of these characters are. The art without exception is fantastic. Um, the stories for the most part are really strong. There's some that are maybe average, um, but it's probably only one or two and I'm not going to single them out. Um, but for the most part, they're, they're really, really strong. Um, but man, the Lee, we they really did a great job starting off with Lee weeks, his art and that first, Batman story is just fantastic. And you follow that up with Mark Wade and Kevin McGuire on Superman. Yeah, I was, I was all in, uh, even though I haven't read any of these characters since those original tangent issues came out. So anyway, how familiar with, were you with tangent? What'd you think of this? I think you're muted Rocky. There we go. Nope. Still muted. Sorry, there you go. Sorry, it's been twenty years since I've read uh, the uh, or anything from Earth Six, and it was nice refreshing re refreshing my memory. I think this is an absolutely excellent uh, compilation of stories. I think if you want to, this is this is I would have this would have been my dream uh, as a as as a young kid reading comics. Yeah, can I, can I, hold on. Can I can I stop you right there, real quick? One thing I forgot to mention. Sorry to interrupt. Um, this is. DC's tribute to Stan on his hundredth birthday. And I find it shameful that Marvel gave nothing other than a one page splash saying happy birthday, Stan 
as opposed to guys, you know, distinguished competition is dedicating a whole hundred page giant to his memory. Uh, I, I just, that's, that's not right in my mind. Disney do better. Sorry. I had to get off the, off. Yes. No, yeah. no. Uh, and I agree. Uh, but I just want to say, Here's here's just a little bit of tidbit. What, what I like about this, all the characters here have uh, their names all begin the same. Uh, the secret identity of, of the uh, Earth Six Flash is Mary Maxwell. Uh, of Wonder Woman, it's Mary Mendoza. Uh, of Green Lantern, it's Len Lewis, a professor. It's Shazam is Robert Ro- is Robert Rogers. Uh, Aquaman is Raymond Raymond. Uh, Catwoman is Joni Jordan. I mean, they got. I mean, there's there's little. Uh, their names are the same letters. Uh, and uh, the only exception to that is Sandman, who was Larry Wilton, who was an astronaut. And the one unifying aspect of all of their origins is this green mist. This green mist or this green substance actually forms part of the reasons why they end up with some of their powers and and their origins of course vary and are different and it's it's very compelling such so that even the formative event that makes brings them together to form the the justice league of america uh, or the, the justice league is uh the, the the primary the lex luther of earth six is this man by the name of dominic dark and he is uh, and Adam Strange in this universe is the son of Dominic Dark and it's Adam Strange who goes to the Justice League and wants to help uh, recruit them to help do battle against the forces of Dominic Dark and of course um, uh, Lois Lane is a, is a talent agent uh, not a reporter Snapper Carr is an interesting character who's got a who's basically there he's good at working with the media and he always has a plan and the the machinations and all these stories here in this is I think is uh, I think I think was it 104 pages how long this is this is this is it's 107 pages. but yeah I think some of those were the covers but yeah so I think it's probably 100 interior pages right but fantastic this is all one magnum opus story that you get a very very detailed snapshot of Earth 6 and kudos to DC for putting the the who's who explaining given further details which is something they should do more of because these are these are characters with rich backgrounds and and i personally felt like this this is a story that i want to know more of i thought these stories worked i thought these characters were interesting i got no problem if i got future Earth six stories if there's a future multiversal saga uh a future maybe a crossover event between our earth does earth zero and earth six or whatever i mean i would welcome that i personally wish they would have this same sort of compilation for another random earth that we don't know about or that we just be, it's just been hinted at i i actually quite enjoy this if we're gonna have compilations like this give me a brand new universe with richly flushed out characters like this now because you know for all intents and purposes we only saw these characters like whatever it was in 2001 2002 i mean it's 20 years ago it's these these are these are well done characters and boy can you absolutely tell that stanley you you definitely pick up the stanley vibe here and talk about a who's who of talent you know i mean stanley working with with jim lee dave gibbons uh scott mcdaniel uh chris bachelor uh i mean this is this is well worth the read this is in my view if you want to pick up something the most bang for your buck is probably this issue earth earth six is probably you're going to get the most bang for your buck and i'm, a, I'm guessing it's probably a ten dollar comic that's probably worth every penny yeah i would i would assume so and some really cool covers to choose from as well so 
Uh, all right, up next we have the final issue of The Nice House on the Lake. James Tynan IV is the writer. Alvaro Martinez Bueno does the art and covers. Jordi Blair on colors and world design on letters. Variant cover by Andrea Sorrentino. Um, wow, long time coming. Took a bit of a hiatus in the middle even. Um, this series has been excellent throughout. And uh, I don't know, I feel like it ended on a, a pretty high note. And one thing I'll point out is on the cover, we finally got the 11th symbol. Um, you know, there was only supposed to be 10. Uh, and we know Walter snuck in an, an 11th member of the uh, the nice house on the lake. So what were your thoughts on this ending? This is uh, well, a spoiler alert. I'm going to be doing my uh, top 10 DC comics. And while this might be a cheat because it's a DC black label, but I'm this this might might be close to my top. This is in my top three best DC comics of the year. Might even be number one. I'm still, I'm still thinking hard about it. This is fantastic. This is absolutely fantastic. Talk about nailing the landing. I mean, nailing the landing in an absolutely epic way. I, I, I thought this was just absolutely epic. Uh, the, I mean, we, we've known that the, Walter's this alien that has his, brought his 10 friends uh, to save them from uh, the, you know, the earth being destroyed. And uh, we know that he could only save 10, but there wasn't a, a mysterious, there was an 11th one that was there that threw a wrinkle into things. And, and how it's resolved is so brilliant that the idea that, that, that Walter this nice house on the lake is essentially one massive, I guess you could, it's a massive environment that you can control the environment. There's a mechanism, there's a mechanism that upon which Walter can control the environment and which he, through a number of the different characters, have also, uh, Nora and Ryan, various characters, have also controlled the environment and can also, in effect, control their immortality, control the degree to which they can be hurt, the degree to which they can remember, their memories can be taken from them and then given back. And uh, all of this is essentially controlled. And the revelations here, I mean, wow, talk about... I mean, all the big revelations are really saved for this final issue, too. I mean, and we, we got some whopping revelations in the first 11 issues, which were pretty cool enough. But this final issue, the, the whole idea of uh, the idea that they don't want. I mean, I almost don't even want to ruin it for people. I want them to read it because the revelation is just so epic. The the whole idea that. Walter wants them to live, but he also doesn't want his master's to discover that that what they've done they, they don't he doesn't want his masters his people his his other people in his that make up his alien race to discover that that they know what they know and and he wants them to live and to thrive in this new environment and this nice house on the lake. The rest of the earth is in fact destroyed though. We now, that was confirmed. It's in fact destroyed and he wants to keep them going, but he, they have a choice. They can either kill Walter and control it themselves, but eventually they're going to be discovered by his masters and they're probably going to take him out. But the masters are very busy and so they might not notice them, but the, or the other option is they can let Walter continue to control their environment and control their nice house on the lake and control their world and control their reality. But they don't want Walter to do that. And it, it deals so brilliantly with, with that theme of, would you, what's free will? What's really free will? Is it, for some reason, is it free will if 
Walter is controlling their environment, they can still exercise free will. But the fact that Walter is controlling it takes away from their conception of free will. And yet, the ending is so brilliant because they get their free will. Walter's taken off the table and they think they're in control, but they're not. But it's the illusion of free will that is important. So it's not, and that's the message here. It's almost like, it's almost such a deeply religious one in so many ways because it's an allegory to the Messiah story. You know, I mean, Nora knows the truth that Walter is still alive, but she can't tell anyone because if she does, it will it will stop their perception of, of the free will. They they will feel caged and they will corrupt themselves. If, if they feel that they're being caged, if they feel they have no agency, if they feel they have no control over their environment and Walter's in control of everything, then they're going to lose their sense of free will. But yet, even when Walter's not off the playing field and he's removed from the playing field and he's taken out of the equation... They still don't have the free will, but they don't know that. But it's the illusion that they do that keeps them going. Yeah, they don't see the puppet strings. They do not see the puppet strings. And that is what so fascinating. And I feel like what was so great about this book was it felt like it came full circle, right? With the way the first issue started off and the way the last issue ends here with Nora and um, and Walter talking, you know, because it's like, it has flashed back and forth, you know, a lot throughout with with us or early on in the series, first six issues, us seeing Walter interact with these um, 10 individuals before they were in the nice house on the lake. And then with Walter and Nora, you know, conversing and, and you know, her saying, well, in order for this to work, they have to not know that they're, you know, that everything's predetermined, that you're, you know, still alive, whatever. And even when Walter, you know, allows himself to be, quote unquote, killed um, and they sort of suspect that's the other aspect of this. That's the other layer. They don't want to know. They don't want to know there are puppet strings. It's like ignorance is bliss. There's that layer as well, right? Like the rest of the world is gone. Like you can't control it. There's nothing you can do about it. Does it matter if you have puppets? Like wouldn't, wouldn't you rather just try to live, especially if you're going to be immortal, wouldn't you just want to try to live and be happy? You know? Do the best you can with the circumstances because it is completely out of your control. Or you can choose to be miserable, you know? So, yeah, fantastic, fantastic story. I like the way it was phrased. Uh, Nora Nora says to Walter, Walter, you, you want us to be grateful to you for saving us, but we'll never be grateful for a cage we didn't choose. We'll never thank our jailer, even knowing the alternative. And yeah, yeah. is that not an allegory to religion uh, to the way we view our lives is there an almighty god is there a creator are we in control of our lives do we have free choice is is there predestination is everything predetermined and ultimately does it even matter like the fact that it ends with nora being the only one that knows that walter's still alive she's the only one that knows and she's got to keep that secret and does she want to ruin it does she, she she knows she can't tell them the truth because it might corrupt them and and that's the illusion of that, that they have freedom of choice is so powerful. And man, does it work? And incredibly, I don't even, 
this doesn't this is a perfect ending for me i don't need another this at the end of this it says this is the end of cycle one is suggesting that there's apparently there's other walters out there there's other there's other enclaves of nice houses on the lake there's other people like walter that have saved their people that, that was hinted at so this is the end of cycle one so it makes you wonder where this story is going to be going because walter at the end does does speak and he, he talks of further further obstacles that they will overcome in the future so man what a fantastic like you know the more i'm talking about it i'm I'm, this is probably going to be my number one pick for the year. Spoiler alert, because this is just just a fantastic ending. Yeah, it's it's so good, and it, you know that quote you read about. Yeah, we're never going to accept the cage we didn't choose. You know, it's so often the cliche is, oh, you know, humans they won't accept the cage. You know, we have to have our freedom. Self aware enough, to, they don't make that claim. Oh, we'll never allow ourselves to be caged. No, we'll never allow ourselves to be caged in a cage we don't choose, right? Because we all choose our own cages. We choose to, you know, uh, th maybe this might be a poor analogy, but you choose to get married, right? An old ball and chain. Uh, or do you choose to, to, you know, have a job or, you know, you we all live in a society. You got to follow the rules. And, and, you know, there's a certain uh, aspect, certain way you could look at that and say, yeah, they're all, they're all cages in a way, right? Um, they're all things that you, that you have to, put up with in order to like live and function in, in a society. So, and Nora, yeah, Nora, the burden of that, like what a strong character she is to, to have that burden and uh, of the truth. And like, man, you wonder how long she can hold on to that. Um, so yeah, fantastic story. Uh, all right. <laughs> up next action comics, number 1050, Oh, lots to unpack here. Written by Philip Kennedy Johnson, Tom Taylor, and Joshua Williamson. We've got art by Mark Mike Perkins, Clayton Henry, Nick Dragata, colors by Frank Martin, letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, tons of variant covers. I'm not going to read all the, the cover artists because there's, I mean, there's even a one in 500. There's so many uh, variant covers. Um, but basically, this is the story of how you put the genie back in the bottle. Like how... How did Superman get his secret identity back? So, um, yeah, what are your thoughts? Uh, man, I I love Lex Luthor. God bless Lex Luthor, man. I love him because uh, I don't care how they did it. I don't. I didn't care if he. I wanted the secret identity back, and I'll be. It was such a stupid idea. A, such a stupid idea by Bendis to take away, to, to reveal the truth. I hated it. Always hated it. Continue to hate it. I would have happily accepted a terrible story to bring back the secret identity. As it turns out, we got a good story bringing back the secret identity. One that actually works. One that has possesses a high degree of verisimilitude, given what we know about the bastard known as Lex Luthor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, God, you know, Goodbye, sweet Manchester Black. We we hardly knew thee, but you know, uh, you, you wasn't a very sweet person anyway. I, it was tragic what happens to Manchester Black here. In a nutshell, Lex Luthor uses the telepathic abilities of Manchester Black, along with the orphan technology, the war world tech, to essentially make the world forget that Clark Kent is Superman. And, and as a consequence of that, they also forget that John Kent is also Superman slash Superboy, whatever. And that the impact that that has is, is, a ram is obviously going to have ramifications 
for the DC Universe going forward. In a nutshell, the Kent Farm is protected by a Justice League shield, so they're unaffected by that. Jay Nakamura, uh, John John Kent's boyfriend, is he, he was in the Kent home when that took place, so he's unaffected by that. The Teen Titans, a lot of the Teen Titans, a lot of the other heroes who, who have psychic shields built in them, Thanks to Martian Manhunter and their various battles over the over the many uh, many years, uh, they they are also uh, were unaffected by the psychic or the m- mental manipulation that took away the memory that Clark Kent, the Kent family, is connected to of the Superman family, and anyone who remembers gets a stroke. So if you try to if they try to get people to remember the truth, you will actually. Uh, cause them harm and that and that even happens to Perry White here where Perry White sh- happens to coincidentally show up at the Ken farm for supper and and of course he's completely shocked to see you know I'm here to, to, to visit Lois Lane and Clark Kent why why is Superman here why are the Supermans here why is Jay Nakamura I know that he's the boyfriend of one of the Supermans why is he here Perry White when when they try to get him to remember uh, because they don't realize what's going on Perry has a stroke Fortunately, the, he he survives, but it's 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 uh, it's very powerful. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on it. I love this. I love the battle between at the end Lex Luthor explaining himself to Superman. Why Lex Luthor did it? He's saying, "Look, we grew up together in Kansas. We grew up in we grew up together, Clark. I mean, and and you, you had a secret and you didn't share it with me." You know, but you shared it with the world. Well, screw you. I'm going to take away that secret. Now I'm the one, the only one that knows and the world doesn't. Screw you. You don't like it. I don't care. And um, and this is sort of building on a great scene at the beginning before he kills Manchester Black. Manchester Black says, by the way, Lex, you know what Superman always thought of you? Do you know what he really thinks of you? Nothing. He never thinks of you. He never, you're never on his mind. And of course, that made Lex Luthor even more pissed off. And that, 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 you know, the, the character work in this issue, I really enjoyed this. I thought this worked. I'm just glad the secret identity is back. I'm just stunned that they actually made a good story out of it. Again, it's putting lipstick on a pig, but man, this is a good looking pig. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I enjoyed it as well. Uh, I mean, the interaction between Luther and Manchester Black, you're right. Like, what's worse than you're talking about, oh, you, you, you want to be liked? Or, well, if you can't be liked, be hated. The worst thing is to be apathetic, right? To have somebody that doesn't, he doesn't even think about you. You're not even a thought in his head. You know, it's one thing, oh, I, I love Lex Luthor. Oh, I hate Lex Luthor. Man, you're not even a thought in my head, Lex. Uh, you know, what could be worse for a megalomaniac like, like Lex? Uh, and the other thing I thought would he, I mean, this totally burns out Manchester Black, like totally burns him out. Um, like it's just brutal what, uh, what Lex does to him here. And all I could think was, what a far cry from the Lex Luthor that we got at the end of the Jeff Johns Justice League run, right? Where he was actually, uh, and going into DC Rebirth, uh, where he was actually a member of the Justice League and his armor had the Superman symbol on it and, and everything. This is not that. Lex Luthor. This is not Jeff Johns, Lex Luthor. This guy is as evil as they come. Um, and just, yeah, uh, what a, what a great way to, uh, to figure it out. I'm always really impressed that these writers, when they go to dial back a secret identity or roll it back, they find interesting ways to do it. Um, you know, cause Charles Stoll had to do the, the same thing when he took over Daredevil, uh, Mark Wade had made it public knowledge that, uh, Matt Murdock and Daredevil were one and the same for a long time. 
So uh, I thought that was uh, that was really fantastic. And then, of course, seeing Lex try to justify it, right? Like how, again, uh, how perfect the characterization is for Lex in the hands of Philip Kennedy Johnson. Oh, I, the truth is a dangerous thing. I'm helping you out, you know? Uh, the, the world cannot know that you are, are Clark Kent. You know, the world needs to believe you're a god. Again, this is this is Lex Luthor's version. Like, if, if I had your powers, you know, this is his spin on it. You have to be above them, not one of them. You know, and, and who is Luthor to, to, you know, make that decision to decide? Um, and so it's fantastic when Clark kind of loses his temper and takes Luthor and throws him onto the moon. Um, you can tell he just, uh, you know, he's like, you're helping me? Ah, man, like... You can tell that uh, that Clark really wanted to to not pull the punches, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to add: there's a great scene where where it, and it's just left silent. It, the art speaks droves about Luther's narcissism. It there's a it's on page 19. Uh, well, it's probably not in the actual comic because we, we I showed all the variant covers, but there's mo there's a picture. Lex is standing in front of a picture of himself and right beside it is the Mona Lisa and the Mona Lisa is small and insignificant and it and it just it just looks so funny because he you know he's standing here's a great big here's the Mona Lisa which I'm assuming that it's it's the real thing but maybe it isn't but but you knowing Lex it's probably the actual genuine article and beside it is this huge picture of himself and it just it's one thing that it, it magnifies the the narcissism of Lex Luthor that he can't conceive of anything, no work of art, no bit of knowledge, no bit of, uh, no concept, no person, no place, no thing can be greater than, than himself. Not even the Mona Lisa, <laughs> not even Superman, not even, he'll take it upon himself to, 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 to tell the, to know the truth better that he knows it. And he's the only one that knows it. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's the extreme narcissism and it comes across so well. This is so well played out in this issue that, uh, like I said, I was, I was very, very impressed and, and, you know, just the character work alone, uh, the, the action sequences on the moon and everything else were sort of like window dressing, uh, but was unnecessary because the character work alone. I mean, Lex Luthor won this round. I mean, he I mean, he may have Lex Luthor might end up in jail at the end of this issue. But make no mistake, Lex Luthor is the one that kicked Superman's ass this issue and not just Superman, the whole Superman family. So I didn't take it that way at all, because uh, I because the, re the revelation like I agree, this is far and away. My favorite issue that Philip Kennedy Johnson has done. Granted, he's got some, you know, some co-writers on here, but I, I think this probably this idea is something that three of them cooked up. But this is Kennedy Johnson doing the, the heavy lifting. Because um, yeah, you're right. This is all about Luther, and he does win in terms of there's he's established a new status quo for Superman. But we learn that Superman himself has a new status quo as well, right? Because Luther thinks he's, you know, he's giving voice to this idea that hey, Superman, I helped you out need to be above them, whatever. But really, his true motivations for doing it is to throw Superman off his game, right? And ultimately defeat him, replace him, whatever. And during that battle out out in in orbit, you know, he does say after Superman, you know, he sees just how strong Superman is. Like, maybe I've underestimated him to some extent, because we know when he went to War World, his powers were waning. On War World, he didn't even have powers uh, for the majority of the time. But as he's fighting Luther in orbit, 
Luther realizes, man, uh, this guy's stronger than I remember him to the point where he even says, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe things would be easier without you around. And keep in mind that this new war suit that Luther's wearing is also orphan box and world world technology. And he teleports. He doesn't say how far, but he teleports Superman away. And he says, you know what? Maybe I was wrong. Maybe we'd be better off if Superman's not uh, around at all. And he said, ah, he, you know, he took that poorly. Safe journey. Um, maybe I'll send your family to Canis, the Canis major system to keep you company. He's like, wait, what? And Superman's back already. Like he's back. Like he sent him in context here, must have been millions of light years away. And he says, you don't get it, Luther. My mind and my body are stronger than it ever been. Concepts like weight, distance, temperature, even space time have largely lost their meaning for me. And the look on Luther's face, like he just sent Superman, you know, so, so, so far away. And he's back almost instantaneously. And you can see the look on it. He's like, oh, crap. And Superman even says, in moments, I can cross distances that cease to be distances. And I don't need your little metal suit or ray gun to do it. And he, another power we haven't seen before, he touches Luther's suit and it completely just falls apart. And all that's left is like the life support helmet. And Luther's like, oh, don't kill me. Like he realizes how outclassed he really is. So, and Superman says, hey, you're going to prison for murder. So my question is, how much has Metallo leveled up? Because we know that Superman has recruited Metallo and has been doing so for the past few issues to go against Superman. And obviously he's going to have to be a threat. But it's almost like Philip Kennedy Johnson has dialed Superman's powers back up to, dare I say, pre-crisis levels. Like he has never been – I can't remember the last time he was this powerful. Like he shoots him thousands or millions of thousands of millions of miles or whatever away and he comes back. He's like, yeah, space-time doesn't matter. Weight doesn't matter. Temperature doesn't matter. Like truly – true invulnerability again. Like truly able to like fly – like can we get a uh, – can we get a new Superman flash race with Superman at this new power level? How long will this last? It's got to be um, like a remnant of how he got recharged, right? With um, – I can't remember the name of it. Yeah, on War World, the name of whatever the, the god was. Well, remember that the, he – yeah, oh, the, or, yeah the, the, the flame of Orgum, right? That he had momentarily and he put it in the little boy and whatever. So it's got to be a side effect of that. Will, will it last? I mean, it'll last as long as Philip Kennedy Johnson wants it to last, right? Or maybe the following writer. Um, and eventually he'll come back down. Yeah, it should be noted about his, like he's become uber Superman again because, uh, and he was like that in the Silver Age. And guess who, guess who's a real big fan of the Silver Age? And you could tell by his writing in World's Finest. Oh, yeah. Mark Wade. Wade. Mark Wade yeah. and uh, Mark Wade always wants to write Superman. Mark Wade still isn't writing Superman. I mean, he is in World's Finest, but he's not writing a Superman title yet. Uh, but uh, but sooner or later he's going to be. And I like this. I like the, this return. Let's give. Let let's try a more Uber Superman. Uh, and uh, and dare I suggest that if Superman is this powerful, how come he's having so much trouble against Failsafe? I mean, come on. <laughs> really. <laughs> But yeah, don't think about it too hard. Um, yeah, so I, I love it. Philip Kenny Johnson showing his fantastic world building abilities once more. Luther does end up in Strikers Island at the end of the issue. That's storyline to be continued in Superman One. That's Joshua Williamson's book. Um, and then elsewhere in the multiverse, we get a little prelude of what we're going to see in Adventures of Superman John Kent. So if you listen to my Tom Taylor 
uh, interview. Granted, I know it was really short. Um, DC was basically had Tom that day doing like one interview after another. So we only got about 10, 15 minutes each. But, but anyway, we know that um, there are different Superman of the multiverse being killed. And it looks like uh, Val Zod is out there trying to, to figure out, or maybe it's Calvin Ellis. I can never tell the difference between those two. That, that's Val uh, I think that's, I think that's Val Zod, but yeah, I think it's Val Zod as well. I think that's what Tom said, but yeah, he's going to basically recruit John Kent to come and help him out to find out who, who, first of all, who's powerful enough to kill Superman, different versions of Superman throughout the multiverse. And you know, how are they going to stop him? So, uh, so yeah, all that plus, yeah, just how powerful is Metallo if he can take on this Uber Superman um, that we know uh, that we have here. So yeah, this is my favorite issue of the Philip Kennedy Johnson era. By far, it's not close. Uh, like just seeing that Uber Superman, he's like, man, space time doesn't even matter to me. Like, so time travel, like, yeah, just awesome, awesome. I, I am compelled to say that I think that. Like me, I don't think Batman is losing any sleep over the fact that Lex Luthor uh, won this round. Uh, Lex Luthor's not going to be in jail for long. I, I I feel slightly differently than you on this. Even Batman says to Superman, is this really that bad a thing? Because Batman yeah. was always leery about Superman, you know, revealing his truth to begin with. It's because it was not, it was always a little bit uneasy. And let's, if we actually look at the storyline since the truth reveal, there have been the Kents were almost killed. It didn't. I mean, like they did actually. They've been in harm's way uh, on more in more than one storyline because of the revelation. And you know, you can talk your way around it and everything else. But this the story potential is so much better. Think of the story potential that's, now. That's, that's that's, that's where I come out. Like there's so much more story potential with him having a secret identity. Like you're, you're erasing decades. Yeah. Decades of history by getting rid of his identity. Like it just doesn't, it's part, it's part of his mythos. Superman Clark can't change it in a phone booth. You know, like I get it. We don't have phone booths anymore, but that, it, that's, that, that's an iconic part of the myth. I, I think removing it, I can't even believe that Bendis got approval for it, to be honest with you. Well, uh, I'm I'm so glad. And, and there's a wonderful scene where John Kent goes to, goes into a Starbucks or a coffee shop, orders a coffee, and they write they, they misspell his name John with an H on the coffee because they don't know who he is. And it's such a good scene. And it and, and I love what he says. He John leaves the coffee shop and he says, no, you know, this is perfect. You know, I mean, because they tell him, you know, it's, you know, he says, you spelled my name wrong. Sorry, man. No, it's okay. This is perfect. And it is perfect. I think it is perfect because finally he, he, now he can actually get a secret identity. He needs one. He can't be super, he can't be Superboy slash the other Superman all the time. He has to have a secret identity. He has to have a life outside yeah, of Jay Nakamura. Right. He has to. Yeah, you're 100% right. That's what we need for him. But yet, and again, I'm not, not nothing against Tom Taylor, but it said we're not getting like, can we get him in high school? Can we get him, you know, secret identity, college, whatever it is? Uh, but no, and said we're going to get, he's going to fly off in the multiverse. So he's not going to even need a secret identity because he's going to be out there uh, trying to solve this mystery. So, but we know there's more to come after that. Tom has already told us that. So, uh, all right, let's move on. Uh, John Stewart, the Emerald Knight, number one, Gemini Lux from writer Jeffrey Thorne. Marco Santucci is the artist. Michael Atea on colors. Rob Lee on letters. Um, this is the end of Jeffrey Thorne's hero worshiping tale of John Stewart. Um, it brought 
all the threads. Like if you haven't, if you didn't read his Green Lantern run, Jeffrey Thorne's Green Lantern run, you'll be completely lost. So it, make sure you read that first, um, and then come and read this. And it's a satisfying conclusion. And we have uh, uh, what is he, Lonar, uh, and all the rest of the the characters that we had in that Green Lantern run. They all show up here. It's um, a satisfying enough conclusion, I guess. Um, we at one point get John Stewart, like literally as an Emerald Knight, he's wearing, um, armor. And I guess if you're a big John Stewart fan, like Jeffrey Thorne is, you'll probably enjoy this. Um, I thought it was just okay. Um, I don't know what to expect from Mariko Tamaki on Green Lantern. I think that's a very unexpected choice. Um, is she writing? Is, is she writing Hal Jordan or John Stewart? Marika they, haven't, uh, they, haven't they haven't said. said. I don't think they've said. because I think they've said that they're, they're both in the book, book but, but I don't know if one's, one's going, going to be. be well, PKJ uh, I thought was was John Stewart. I, th- I thought Philip Kennedy Johnson was writing Hal Jordan. Uh, you're wrong. I'll, I'll look. I'll look that up while you give us your thoughts on this because I don't really have much else to say. Um, just kind of glad this era of Green Lantern's over tell you something this is an absolutely huge revelation here this is uh this is a game changer for john stewart because this ends with uh the god isak is defeated by having john stewart have the god that this isak basically choose his demense a demense when you're a god you have to be a god of something the source the the source which creates all life when the source creates a god when a god dies the source recreates that god but that god has to be the god of something you have to be the god of war the god of the god of light the god of nature the god of journeys like lonar and isaac is defeated isaac is all powerful a god that is created by the source apparently that doesn't have a dimensi doesn't choose a designation is almost too powerful so john stewart basically has isaac choose what kind of god they want to be and it ends up being the god of of, of nature of or the, the god of uh nostalgia of all things in any event where am I going with all this? What's this story really trying to say? Well, in the resolution of this, John Stewart actually pulls a version of himself out of hypertime. There's a there's a there's a point in the story where all of the uh, where John Stewart and his eight Emerald Knights he divides fifty percent of his power and he creates eight swords and gives Calabac and Kins and a, a number of these other knights uh, a portion of his. What's that? Kilowog. I think you said Kalabak. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Kilowog. Thank you. Yeah. Kilowog and Kenzin. They all end up with these eight swords representing half of the power that he has of, of basically as an ascended. John Stewart is not a god. He's ascended. And so that means he's got the power of a god, but he's just, he's still human, I guess. And ultimately, John Stewart ends up Picking a version of himself out of hypertime because there's a there's actually a, a beautiful image with um, where all of where John Stewart is showing the Green Lantern uh, a, a picture or sort of a version of the the multiverse where they can all see. I'm trying to find it here. Uh, they're they're trying to find the strands of the multiverse and the strands that they all branch off of. Uh, in any event, I can't seem to find it, but. We we have two John Stewarts now. 
He pulls a John Stewart out of hypertime. We now have a John Stewart that's staying in the dark sector and going to continue to fight with the Emerald Knights. And we're going to have the other John Stewart who goes back and is the John Stewart on, on Earth. And Xanshi, the planet that John Stewart ultimately ended up accidentally destroying, is restored. It was pulled out of hypertime and it now exists in our time. So it's it's now so Jeffrey Thorne has done for John Stewart what Jeremy Adams has done for Wally West. That's how I put it. Every mistake that John Stewart's ever made has now been fully redeemed. The only thing that hasn't been because Xanshi, Xanshi, the entire planet's back. We got two John Stewart's, not just one. So we get him to be the Emerald Knight in the Dark Sector. Now he can be ordinary John Stewart in on Earth. And to top it all off, we've got um, we've got John Stewart teasing that he wants to find his wife. That the John Stewart in the Dark Sector wants to find his wife who is dead. So because she's not really dead, because somewhere in hyper time, I imagine she's still alive. So there's a lot, a lot to unpack here. This is clearly a situation where if I didn't know better. I mean, we know that John, we know that Jeffrey Thorne, the writer, got screwed over with Dark Crisis. He didn't even know that John Stewart was going to be killed with the rest of the Justice League. Joshua Williamson never gave him the memo. Uh, we know that we know that Jeffrey Thorne's Green Lantern probably wasn't as well received as it was. It was kind of a little bit convoluted, but there was a lot of story there to unpack. And we know that moving forward, we got Marika Tamaki and Philip Kennedy Johnson writing writing uh, John Stewart and Hal Jordan adventures. Yeah, so Mirika Tamaki writing Green Lantern Corps would have multiple characters. It's called Green Lantern Corps, and Hal Jordan will be in that book. And then the other one's called Green Lantern, colon, John Stewart, and that's the one written by Kennedy Johnson. Kennedy Johnson, right. And so the fact that uh, Jeffrey Thorne is not writing it, I think is, uh, well, I think it's telling. And, you know, Jeffrey Thorne, I mean, frankly, it just his style of writing just didn't particularly resonate, but... You, you gotta say, man, he's done. He definitely put John Stewart through the ringer, and a lot of changes here. I mean, I wonder. You think that's why? Do you think that's why he came up with a second John Stewart in the dark dark sector? Because the story, the, like, the story he wants to tell is John Stewart in the dark sector, right? So yeah, you're gonna give PKJ a book. He can he can write a his uh, Green Lantern John Stewart in the regular DCU, and then I can work on the dark sector stories over here, completely separate. John Stewart, powerful enough or important enough character in the DCU, have two, two titles. titles. That's what I, I think he did. I think he did. He goes, but I, but I like this character so much, you know. And he, he has the dark sector. John Stewart go off to try to find his wife, uh, and 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 frankly, that's probably an interesting story. But then there's the other John Stewart because a lot of people want John Stewart back on Earth, where he's, you know, and PKJ I think has taken that. PKJ has a military background. He's probably going to explore John Stewart's military background, make him more down to earth, you know, less godlike. You know, now we're gonna we basically have both. So if you like the more godlike, you know, ascended John Stewart in the dark sector, you, you can have stories like that, and you can have the other John Stewart as well. And and they talk to each other, and apparently there's no problem. And and the way that they conveniently explain hypertime, where hypertime threads itself back into one of the the multiverse uh, strings and it's uh it it actually makes a crazy kind of sense but it 
I'd be curious to know some some diehard Green Lantern fans how they're going to feel about it. Particularly, I mean, look, Zanshi is now back. That planet is totally restored. John Stewart is basically redeemed. Uh, it's been restored. It's now part of our universe now, and that's interesting. And now, if he gets his wife back, well, then you know, it's sort of like every wrong ever done to John Stewart is basically being undone now because it was so wrong. So, I mean, hey, man, they redeemed. They redeemed Hell Jordan and uh, when he was Parallax and everything else, and now they they wanted this is De- Jeffrey Thorne. I mean Jeffrey Thorne, he he dropped a lot of hints that he wanted that he loves John Stewart, uh, and so this really probably shouldn't surprise us, but I am surprised a little. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the idea of him sharing his powers and God, he's so powerful. He can give up half his power and create these swords and give them out, and he's still one of the most more powerful beings in the the DCU. I don't know. I, if I was a John Stewart guy, I probably would just love this. I'm not, so I'm just kind of like, man, it comes across as a little hero hero worship. But I don't know. Maybe he feels that John Stewart's worthy of it. So anyway, let's move on. Detective Comics number one thousand sixty seven is up next. From writer Ron V, Yvonne Reese is the artist on this particular issue. Danny Mickey on inks, Dave Stewart on colors. Ariana Mara does the letters. Um, bit of a transitional issue. We get um, Bruce Wayne and Mr. Freeze in sort of an interesting impasse, I guess you'd say. Freeze is like, just leave me alone here in this abandoned power plant. Um, his kingdom of cold, he calls it where he's got just a bunch of statues of his of his wife who has been restored but doesn't want anything to do with him. So does he have a meaning or what have you to his life? Seems like not. Um, but Batman is, is, is willing to kind of pick his battles, if you will. And then the other part of the story is basically um, one of these Orgums, uh, part of the Orgum family, going to talk to, to Bruce and get his take on things. And I, you don't know if it's coming across as him sort of distracting Bruce from what's going on, because meanwhile, the other members of his family are going to what used to be Wayne Enterprises and are buying up huge chunks of uh, of Gotham City and burning them to the ground, like huge chunks of Gotham City that where uh, Wayne Enterprises was uh, had created affordable housing. And these people are more along the lines of, I guess, almost like a Ra's al Ghul type um uh, theory, right? Or, or plan where, no, we want to burn everything down. So, you know, it can be restored so it can be replenished or what have you, and, and, you know, better, bigger and better. Um, and then there's also the backup with, uh, with Two-Face, which has become <laughs> harder and harder to, to read and understand. I know Cy Spurrier can get pretty esoteric at times. But yeah, I feel completely, I was kind of following along at first, but now I feel completely lost. It's one of the drawbacks to these backups. Rocky and I have talked about it before. You get eight pages, you know, once a month. It's like, it's no, just get rid of the backups, cut the book by a dollar and let's just be done with it. Um, Cause the Hayden Sherman art and the Nick Filardi colors are really fantastic. Uh, Steve Wands does the letters, but like it's such a small part of story and you're only getting it every month. It's hard to, to hang on to it. To, to what's going on. So I'd have to go back and reread it probably all in one sitting once it's out. But honestly, the story's not interesting enough. I'm not invested enough in it to go back and, and spend that time 
you know? So it just ends up being superfluous. Um, but there's no doubt that Ivan Reis, as always, is one of the best artists DC has. And uh, the art in the main stories uh, is fantastic. So um, I do still have some problems with what Ramvi's doing. We've talked about it before, how, you know, he's adding in these people that were at the very beginning of Gotham. And it's like, not everybody can be there at the very beginning of Gotham, right? Like how much retconning can you do? Now we've got the Court of Owls that, um, that Scott Snyder introduced and just keep going backwards and backwards and backwards. Um, then how does everything fit in terms of the timeline? It, it just gets kind of wonky. Um, so th this is okay. Um, the strongest part of it is the line work for me, for sure. What'd you think? I, I, I've been trying to get a handle on this, uh, on the overall narrative and I'm struggling a bit. I, I think I got a little bit of a handle on it, but I, I stand to be corrected. And I please, I encourage everyone who's listening to this uh, or watching this on YouTube, leave comments and correct me if I'm wrong, if you have a different interpretation. I'd really like to know. And certainly, Jace, uh, even your perspective, obviously. But I'm, you know, as far as I can tell, we, we, we had the Detective Comics Annual, which I thought was a chore to read, but it gave the history of the Orgums in 18th century Gotham. And I, for the life of me, I didn't understand what the point of the story was other than to establish that the Orgums used to be in Gotham three, 300 years ago. I did, and apparently it's revealed in this issue where there's actually an editor's note that says something that apparently happened in the annual that I didn't pick up happened in the annual at all. But apparently in the annual, there was a, there was some sort of, Th Thelemus engine that was buried in the bowels of a church in the Detective Comics annual. I don't recall reading that. I'm sure it did, uh, yeah, but um, that whole annual was, I think, not particularly well written. But in this issue, what what's what I find what's really odd here is that they talk about a reality engine and then a Thelemus engine that this Master Orgzen, or Orgum, or pardon me, Master this master organ and he's got this gal working for him as the bodyguard they retrieve this uh thelemus engine from the bowels of the church underneath which it was buried which is the same church that they want to build their own arkham building or the, their own orgham building to replace on the previous site of arkham asylum and apparently that this 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 thelemus engine can now help them begin the true work of reshaping the city and reminding it of its underlying scars and mapping them to this reality engine. And then when he, and, and he's saying this reality engine is Gaul is opening up this chest and inside the chest are four masks. And this is where Ram V really uses a bunch of synonyms for mask. He says, what fool poet thought the Vizard and Aegis Vizard means mask, Aegis means protection. So what fool thought that the, these masks could be protection? Basically, none of these masks are meant to protect. These ma masks are meant to be weapons. I note that the masks, the only mask I recognize is the Court of Owl mask, the Owl mask. So if we have the Court of Owls at the beginning of Gotham, what do the other three masks represent? Do we have other courts other than the Court, the court of Owls? I'm confused. But intrigued a little bit so we got the court of owls mask and these other three masks but then we also have something called the azir that mr freeze gives to batman after rescuing batman mr freeze doesn't want to help the organs and so he gives batman this azir 
power source of some time at the beginning of the issue saying that this is what they want, but I don't want to help them out. And Mr. Freeze says something to Batman that's very interesting. He says, Batman, he says, I think that you think of Gotham like I think of Nora. And Mr. Freeze says to him that, you know, Nora recently left me, you know, because Nora became, remember, he, he, he cured Nora, Nora became thought out and then Nora basically betrayed Mr. Freeze and now she's out on her own doing her own villainy. She left him. And incidentally, this is not the Nora of the one bad day. So there's a continuity glitch there. But in any event, uh, Mr. Freeze compares just like he had an idealistic version view of Nora. Mr. Freeze says to Batman, I think that Gotham is your is your Nora. You have an idealistic view of Gotham and just like I had an idealistic view of Nora and you're wrong. And that's one of the things that Ramvi is trying to make. The, one of the points he's trying to make through the Orgums is that we only, we as readers only think we know what Gotham is. The Orgums are saying they have this press conference ushering a new age, buying up all of Gotham properties. Gotham only thinks it knows itself. The true history of Gotham is what the Orgums know through this Azir, through these masks. And these masks aren't to protect us we're going to use these masks as weapons and so i don't really know where the hell all this is going and how it involved the league of assassins and tally at the beginning but it's kind of intriguing i just wish it wasn't so convoluted because it doesn't seem paced very well in my mind and i share your sentiment with respect to the backup feature man get rid of that backup feature it's not really helping at all i don't really understand the backup i don't understand the backup feature has gal talking to two-face and I, I, I just don't understand. The, and, and then he, he refers to a Dr. Mead. I don't know who that is. He says the Azmir is curiously silent. I don't know that the Azmir, was it supposed to make some noise? I, I don't understand the references here. And I've, you know, I've, when I read this comic two or three times, I'm still lost. So I literally have to, I'll have to listen to other reviews and read other reviews and uh, to try to figure out what's going on. But I, I don't think Ram V is doing a particularly good job with, with clarifying this story uh, because it seems like he has a habit sometimes of being very esoteric and being very flowery and, and, and a little bit pretentious in his language and then dropping a bunch of revelations at the end. But the journey all the time, sometimes the journey can be a little wonky in that respect. But um, in any event, uh, did you, uh, are, are you, are you picking, is this narrative clear to you or? No, not, no, not, not at all. But again, like you said, I sort of expect that from Romvi and maybe it'll come together in the end. Like if I, he, you know, it's sort of a, um, it's sort of a drawback of, of the way we do this, right? Like we do these DC spotlights and, you know, we got to look at how many books we're talking about here. You know, we're going on like three hours here. Um, so it's, it's a lot to digest. So if you're reading everything, you know, I, I can't maybe take the time to spend as much as I would like to with, with Ron V. And this is week after week after week, right? That we do this. So yeah, I was like, in order to understand this and get more out of it, I probably need to go, and maybe this isn't fair to the writers that we do it this way, but I would need to be going back and constantly, like every two or three issues, going back and, and rereading the run from the beginning, right? Or if I was more heavily invested, this is the only comic I bought, maybe I could remember it better or have it make more sense. But um, so I, I'm not going to lay all the blame at Ram V's feet, but 
yeah, I, I sort of, I mean, I look at, I go back and think about his Swamp Thing run. And it was kind of the same thing. There's a lot of cool ideas there, but it's not the easiest read um, as opposed to something like what uh, Bruce Campbell is doing, for example, in, in Sergeant Rock. I can follow that. I can remember like no problem because, you know, there's not all these big ideas, you know, and it's not to say that one story is better than the other. It's just a different style of, of you know, a different way to tell a story as it were. So. Uh, all right. Up next, the Riddler Year One Part Two from writer Paul Dano. Stephen or Stephen Subic is the artist. Clayton Cowell on letters. Um, for those that aren't familiar, um, Paul Dano's the actor who played the Riddler in um, in the latest Batman, the Matt Reeves Batman movie, and this is uh, that version of the Riddler. So don't um, you know? Don't pick this up thinking you're going to get like Tom King, Mitch Garrett's. Riddler, this is something uh, completely different. So, uh, what did you think? Are you enjoying this? I, I, I just honestly, I'm. I wasn't a fan of the Batman movie. I, I didn't enjoy the Batman movie, and I, because it's the same tone and the same mindset as the Batman movie, I've not been enjoying it. No, uh, but in fairness, it, it seems to be written. You know, it's it seems to have a point i've just i just sort of skim read it i i can't give an uh, i can't give a an objective review of it i i didn't i i skim read it and so i don't i really don't have much to say on it if you're if you're a fan of the batman movie and look the batman movie is on the top 10 list is is on the is on the top 10 list of a lot of uh people's um, best movies of 2022 uh, and uh and by all means, pick up this by Paul. Pick up this series by Paul Dano because it's it's right up the alley. Uh, when I skim read it, it felt like it was just rehearsing a lot of the same plot points I remember from the movie. But so I can't really give a, a fair and appropriate review of it. So I'll let you talk talk about it. Yeah, I mean, I never saw the movie, so I don't really have any perspective in in terms of that. Um, but what I will say is, you know, like I said, this isn't a, a version of the Riddler that I'm I'm familiar with at all. This is the version of the Riddler from that movie and, and his origin. And I, I will say that Paul Dano has uh, – he's done a good job of making the character sympathetic. Like, uh, you know, we haven't gotten to the point where he's like blowing things up or killing people or whatever. I mean, I don't know what he does in the movie. But, you know, it starts off with Edward Nigma, and he's, he's not a bad guy. He has, you know, good intentions and he's sort of being – I don't want to say persecuted, but maybe maybe uh, taken advantage of by those around him and and lied to and manipulated, and that's you know he does he's got some mental stuff going on already, you know, some mental challenges um, and probably some social challenges as well. Um, so that's all adding up to probably create the serial killer, or supervillain, or villain, or whatever you want to call it that that the Riddler is in the movie. So yeah, I think if you enjoy that movie, you owe it to yourself to pick this up because uh, it's probably very additive to the character of the Riddler in that, in that film. So uh, I, like I said, I haven't seen it. Don't have any plans to see it anytime soon. Just didn't seem to be my particular cup of tea and, or particular brand of vodka, if you prefer that phrase. Um, so I, yeah, I, I didn't see it. I have no plans to see it um, despite people saying it's really, really good. Um, so that does it for the issues we're going to cover uh, like I said, Justice Young Justice Targets number six is also out today. I think there was one other. Oh, Batman the Audio Adventures number four is also out. And then in terms of collections, we've got the Rorschach trade paperback dropping 
uh, on the 27th, uh, Superman Red and Blue trade paperback. And that's that anthology with a limited color palette. It's also out. There's also, speaking of the Court of Owls, a new um, printing of Batman Volume 1, the Court of Owls trade paperback. Come, You can get just a trade paperback or you can buy the set that comes with the Court of Owls mask. And then the DC poster portfolio, Brian Boland. Uh, so if you're a big Brian Boland fan, uh, you can look forward to that. So uh, I want to thank all the guests on the 12 Days of the Comic Source for coming on this year. It was some great, great conversations. If you didn't get a chance to listen to them and you're off work or out of school this week, I highly encourage you to go listen. There's a lot of great information, a lot of passionate creators, um, a lot of fun. I, I, I really I couldn't pick a favorite, man. That, I mean – from Jeremy Adams to Tom Taylor to Tom King, Stephanie Phillips, Christopher Cantwell chat was amazing. The talk I had with Jatson Langson and Colin Kelly was amazing. Like they, they all were just so, so much fun. So informative. Um, and thank, thank you for stuff. doing that. Cause it, it actually, it, it gave me something to do every morning when I was getting ready. And it was, a, it was a, enjoyable to listen to the, uh, to the interviews. It's a uh, very informative and it's, it's nice to put, it's nice to hear these people talk about all these writers talk so passionately about what they do. And, uh, cause regardless of how you feel about the work that they do. And, and, uh, I mean, it's, you, it's hard not to be to just to, to it's hard not to appreciate the passion of, that they bring to their projects yeah it's the same way i feel about brian michael bendis right like he's been on my show i don't particularly enjoy the work that he did on superman but you cannot go to a panel that that guy is on or hosting or or, or meet him at a con and talk about comics with him and not like his love of comics is infectious you, you cannot help but smile and feel good talking about comics with him you know, regardless of whether you like the, what, you know, the story or the plot lines or whatever. So, uh, and yeah. And, and a lot of these creators, you know, I know them personally. So we touch on some, some other stuff, holidays and, and, you know, traditions and that give it, you know, get to know them a little bit. Cause I know uh, a lot of these people, I mean, when I was a kid, I, I would have been over the moon to talk to some of these writers that were writing the stories that I, I love to read, um, as kids. And I have gotten to talk to some of them, you know, like, uh, Jerry Conway and, uh, Marv Wolfman and, and those those guys. So, anyway, hope you guys all enjoyed it. Uh, anything you want to tease, Rocky? You have coming up. I, I have more interviews coming up this month. I mean, I really would love to, you know, drop a new interview on you like every day, every day of the year, but it's not feasible with the day job. Uh, but there were a lot of people that reached out that I that I reached out to that couldn't make it before Christmas and want to do it in the new year. So we'll have more coming, um, but nothing uh, concrete yet. But anyway, uh, what do you have coming up on? Uh, Boom. Probably in the next few days, I'll probably do and some indie reviews. But I'm also I want to do my top my top ten uh, favorite DC comics for the year. I'm my my top indie. I'm not going to do top Marvel because I, I I read very few Marvel this year. I've kind of got, gone away from Marvel. But my top indie and my top DC comic is something that I def I definitely that that'll be coming out for sure. So uh, yeah, we hope to do the the best of the comic source 2022. Hopefully, it'll be before February. Um, I really, this last weekend wanted to start working on my list, but of course I didn't. But, All right. Pick of the week. Hopefully. What's your pick of the week? Oh, oh pick, pick of the, of the week, week. You know, you know it's tough because there's some really great books. Batman Beyond the White Knight was fantastic. Obviously, Wonder Woman Historia with that Nicholas Scott art was gorgeous. But, and, and the end of, ending of Nice House on the Lake was also fantastic. But I got to go because he's my favorite character and my favorite issue of the era. Super powered, jacked up, hyper 
space doesn't mean anything. Space time doesn't mean anything. He's as powerful as he's ever been. I got to go with Action Comics 1050 as my pick of the week. Specifically for that reason, I mean, for, I mean, super, super, uh, Superman's identity being restored, great. Seeing Manchester Black get screwed up, great. Seeing uh, Lex Luthor be, you know, an evil, manipulative bastard that he always is, great. But the cherry on top is Superman more powerful than ever. Yeah, uh, th- that's a really good issue, Action Comics. But I, I have to go. I have to go with Nice House on the Lake because it's it's so it's so rare to have a. It's one thing to have a fantastic journey uh, when you read a story, but when the destination is even more epic than the than the journey, and the journey was fantastic. This was this this the journey of reading the the joy of reading Nice House on the Lake every week. There wasn't a single issue we didn't like. It, the the suspense built and built and built and. Uh, James Tinian, Tinian uh, he nailed the landing here. Absolutely nailed the landing. So kudos to him. Yeah, exactly. And this wasn't one of those things where we got this ambiguous ending. Yes, there are more cells. We could possibly get more stories. Um, but yeah, I agree with you, what you said earlier. But like, I hope we don't go back to these particular characters. Like, I feel like their story is almost circular in a way and it's complete and like, don't, don't mess with it. So anyway, that's going to do it. Everybody appreciate you joining us as always. Don't forget to head over to YouTube. If you don't subscribe to Rocky's channel already, please do so comic space, boom, exclamation point like this, ring the notification bell, leave comments. Uh, you guys know what to do. Conversely, if you found us on YouTube and you want to be sure not to miss any of the audio only comic source podcast content, just go to wherever you get your podcast from, do a search for the comic source and subscribe. So We appreciate you all joining us as always. Wishing everybody a happy new year. Hope you had a festive Christmas and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.